And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. You're right; it does look different over there. We we moved the monitor, and it doesn't look uh, it doesn't look right. But anyway, it looks like a piece of equipment well, was ripped out and yeah. taken away. Well, that's it just threw me off my game there as I was sitting there. But welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman Report. Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful Northwest Pennsylvania. Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us as we as we really tear apart the news and news headlines and what's hiding behind the headlines. It's interesting that, uh, well, we, we've got two web- websites. Please bookmark the websites, hagmanreport.com and hagman and hagman.com. Please bookmark those websites. Check hagmanreport.com on a daily basis, hagman and the hagman for the show itself, but, uh, hagman report for, for the, uh, uh run up to the show. John Robertson, uh, posting, did a great job posting what's up for this week. Um, subject to change, of course, is, is needed and, um, as usual. And also, uh, a couple of just housekeeping issues. There's a, a there's a, a number of new videos up. Videos from, uh, for example, um, Sure Roads edited with, with some pertinent images up from our interview last week is up there as well as, um, a couple of other videos as well as one I did. I just, in fact, I just pressed the OK button on that right before showtime. Uh, my message to men. And, you know, if you're a snowflake and if you've got a, if you're a progressive liberal, if you're demanded in that fashion, then I would, would not recommend you watch it. Um, also I was on Alex, with Alex Jones earlier today talking about, uh, the larger issues of Pedogate and, um, what, what we've been, uh, hearing that is, coming down the pike so uh i'd urge everyone to to find that video on infowars.com portions of the nice broadcast brought to you by pro flowers proflowers.com i'll tell you all you have to do is go to proflowers.com or go to our website go to hagmanreport.com and click on the banner that takes you right to pro flowers we have a unique url there and there you can uh, select your product your Beautiful flowers, your gift, whatever it might be. Oh, do it upright for Valentine's Day. And also enter the code Hagman, proflowers.com. Click on the microphone, type in Hagman, H-A-G-M-A-N-N. But, uh, Joe, the Super Bowl, I guess that's the news, right? That was the news of the, of yesterday. Um, yeah, it was a interesting game. Over 111 million people watched, uh, <laughs> The heads, halftime show heads was, were exploding, by the way, over that. <laughs> the halftime show was, was interesting, Lady Gaga. Um, there was some interesting symbolism there. Gons Shamirna did a great breakdown. Um, of uh, the halftime show? Yes, adding yeah. a lot of, um, past, uh, narratives and halftime show information that added to the breakdown of this last, uh, Lady Gaga yesterday's halftime show. And it was a good game, um, a lot of, you, of you know, I'm Joe, I gotta tell you, I'm very careful now who I go to with respect to halftime analyses or, you know, analyses of the, of the various things like, uh, halftime shows and Olympic shows. I'm very, very careful 
because he, it, it, it's very complex, but the, the, you're right. And he made distinctions. Right. He said, um, you know, to watch as many of the breakdown videos as you can because some people are Christian, some are not. Right. Uh, people disagree on differing points of the analysis and, and to absorb as much as you can of people breaking it down. And I would uh, say that's that's pretty good. There was um, a lot of stuff going on last night in the halftime show that I didn't even really notice at first. I, I was not I was trying not to pay attention to the halftime show, but when you take a look back at it and what people how they're analyzing it, it's very um, spooky. Yeah, I didn't watch any of it. I was on with Dave Hodges last night as well. Yeah, that worked out nice. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, no, I uh, I was on with, with Dave last night and we spoke about. Uh, well, just a number of issues. It was a good show as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, I was, when I, this morning, when I got in the office, I was looking at different, uh, forums and websites and the, the, the progressive liberal Democrats, if that's, I hate to call them Democrats because they're really not. They're, they're, we'll just call them Marxist, Leninist, uh, communist, uh, people. Their heads were just exploding. Oh my gosh, how could this be? You know, 2017 starting out bad already and, and, um, it, just all, all because of their animus towards Trump, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's there's a few storylines. It's there. all about one is um, I think we talked about it last week. Tom Brady is friends with Donald Trump. Tom Brady being the quarterback for the New England Patriots, as well as the head coach Bill Belichick, um, and just for that reason alone, yeah. the left wanted the Patriots to lose. Then there was backlash against Lady Gaga for not saying or turning the halftime show political. Uh, politicizing the halftime show and, and saying anything bad about Donald Trump, huh. and then uh, how would it, how would it, that worked out if Obama was in there? Yeah, Gee, you know. And then there, there was a Bill O'Reilly Super Bowl interview where Trump picked the Patriots to win by eight points, so the yeah. country rallied against their behind the Falcons to show their disdain for Trump. If that makes any sense, sure. Sure, and, no, really, it doesn't. Well, I mean, I mean, it makes sense to the to the mentally incompetent, and I and I mean that. Um, I really, I, the more I the more I look at this, the more I look at the landscape, the more I realize that so these people that we're that we're dealing with here, um, uh, that those who want to over overthrow this country are, in my view, uh, psychotic. I mean, that's you know, look, I don't have a, I, I, and and this was pointed out many times. You know, I'm no doctor. I can't make diagnosis. I, of course not. Idiots. You know, it's interesting. You know, is, shut up. But I think they're psychotic. All right. What's different from this anti-Trump movement? Well, there's a lot of differences from the anti-Trump movement, from the anti-Obama movement. That a lot of the people on the left would have said that the birthers and and the anti. And the Tea Party people wanted the same thing, even though that wasn't something that was. I mean, there was no violence. There was no calls for violence. There was no. There, there were calls for impeachment and whatnot, um, but that was based on, you know, the natural born citizen clause. But the. It's funny how it's it's reverse what it was. Eight years ago. Oh yeah, yeah, and and oh how far down the bowl have we swirled in the last eight years? And that's that's what this is all about, in my view. Anyway, so all right. The um, I just want to let people know when when we're talking about uh, these illegals in this country, that's the big issue. You know, in Los Angeles alone, ninety five percent of some fifteen hundred outstanding warrants for homicides are for illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, people in this country illegally. 
about 67% of the 17,000 outstanding fugitive felony warrants are for illegal aliens. Think about that. There are over 400,000 at the moment unaccounted for illegal alien criminals with outstanding deportation orders in Los Angeles. At least one-fourth of these are hardcore criminals. It's about 100,000, or, yeah, about 100,000. And 80 to 100,000 illegals, illegal aliens who have been convicted of serious crimes are walking the streets right now based on studies that will commit an average of 13 serious crimes per, per perpetrator. Just think about that and let that soak in. And, uh, yeah, uh, so let's all do the, let's all sing kumbaya and embrace one another, right? And say, oh, everything's good. We welcome everyone. Everyone, uh, you know, there are no illegals. I, I just don't understand that. And, and people may say, well, that's pretty hateful to say. No, that's factual. And, uh, you, you've got to understand, I, and I think people have to understand that violent crime and drug, specifically violent crime, um, is prevalent among illegal aliens in people in this country. Over 25% of today's federal prison population are illegal aliens. Think about that. A quarter were, were housing or feeding. Why not send them back, back to where they came from in some other areas of the country? 12% of felonies, 25% of burglaries, 34% of thefts are committed by illegal well, that, aliens. That's a, a question. I mean, if you're an illegal alien, you commit a violent crime. Should you be jailed for the length of your sentence and then deported, or should you be sent to uh, jail in your own country? A lot of people... Why should we house them here? Well, a lot of people are of the mindset, if you commit a crime here, you do your time. Uh, okay. But, I mean, a lot of that... If it goes back with the, not with the illegals, but the you know the quotas on the prison systems. You know, these huge prison populations, we have the most people in jail per capita of any nation. Yeah. And we have... Quotas, yeah. You know. See, a lot of that's for drugs. Now, I, I have a real problem with the DEA, with the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. I believe that that's one agency of this government that should be banished completely, one hundred percent. I I think that the war on um, the, the I, I here's an issue that I've got, and I, in fact, so I think somebody from the American Thinker had just written an article about this, or maybe it was Mike Adams, but uh, the war against drugs is a joke, obviously. But the DEA is going after doctors who are prescribing painkillers to children with cancer, terminal cancer. Now think about this for a second. Here's a child with terminal cancer, and the the doctor is afraid to prescribe that child with painkillers because you know why? That child just might become dependent upon the painkillers. Are you are you kidding me? Well, obviously, with life-threatening well, illnesses such as cancer, that's a different story. But what kind of crap thinking is that? So well, get rid of these people. Those people who write those laws, I and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, I hope to God, if they should get cancer, that somebody ties a painkiller to a fishing line and, and just pulls it as they're suffering from that terminal cancer and just pulls it across the floor and make them crawl for it and just when they just about reach it for that relief that they need from their terminal cancer that's racking their body pull it a little more and, and then those people will get what they deserve in my view making children suffer making the invalid suffer making the impaired and firm suffer that's wrong no but you know the rampant abuse and the a number of, of overdoses that 
continue to pop up. They, they being the government, feel the need to overregulate. So, the, and, and that's that's why they've got a heroin epidemic mm-hmm. among the middle class. Mm-hmm. That, see, that's a dirty little secret they don't tell you. <laughs> it's not that. I, it, look, uh, I understand the dangers of drugs. I I fully understand that. But what I'm saying to you and to everyone out there is when you look at what the DEA does and how they're in the faces of the doctors today and how they are saying, oh, that it's, you can't prescribe medication because, uh, or if you overprescribe, you could lose your license or whatever. The, and, and I had experience with the diversionary, you know, the DEA back, back in the 1990s with respect to, um, some calm cases we were working in and they were looking at the number of amount of painkillers to various patients. And this guy, remember this guy, we call him Shish Kebab. The reason, of course, he fell off of a roof and landed on a fence post. He lived, except that he was impaled by a fence post. Now, how bad does your luck have to be not to do this not once, but twice? It happened to him twice. Well, you got to understand this guy was, seriously, I'm not kidding around. I mean, this is a legitimate Legitimate. Uh, fell on a fence post uh, twice, two different locations, and I, and I, I thought somebody was just spoofing me really bad. And his first name was Robert, so we called him Shishkabob. But uh, he was okay with that. But, but seriously, um, it's a true story. I don't know why I'm laughing, except to say it. It just seems funny. But um, anyway, look. For for him, I mean, his his insides were twisted all around, back and forth, and uh, he relied on pain medication. It just shut him off. He's a middle class guy turned to turned to heroin. So I don't know. Happens a lot. I don't know how many people saw this today. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot on this show about the liberal insanity and the hypocrisy of the left. There's a interesting. Interesting video. Maxine Waters. Um, She reiterated calls for President Trump's impeachment during uh, House Democrats' Monday morning press conference. When she was asked a question about whether she, uh, when pressed about stating why would she call for the president's impeachment only a month into uh, his term, she gave a half coherent, half incoherent statement. And you should hear some of what she said. Uh, she starts off by answering the reporter saying, I didn't, I never call, I have not called for his impeachment. The statement I made was a statement in response to a question and please that I'm getting from many citizens across the country. What are we going to do? She then began to embark on a lengthy rant devoid of any semblance of traditional <laughs> grammatical structure. How can a, this is what she said. How can a president who is acting in the manner that he is acting whether he's talking about the travel ban or the way he is talking about Muslims or whether he's talking about his relationship to Putin and the Kremlin, knowing that they hacked our DCCC and the DNC, knowing that he's responsible for supplying the bombs that killed innocent children and families in Aleppo, the fact that he is wrapping his arms around Putin while Putin is continuing to advance into Korea. I think he's leading himself into that kind, the, the words in half, it's cut in half, kind of position where folks began to ask, what are we going to do? The answer is going to eventually be, <laughs> we got to do something about him, she continued. Well, but what is she talking about? He's responsible 
for no he's knowingly responsible for supplying the bombs that killed innocent children and families in Aleppo. Where were any of these people from the Arab Spring oh, of course. to the arming of yeah. Syrian rebels that led to the the massacre of hundreds of thousands of people? But now that he's president, they turn around and say he's supplying bombs that killed children and families in Aleppo. And she goes on to say a, a lot more, which even the article points out is very incoherent. Uh, she ended by saying, we cannot continue to have a president who is acting in this manner. It is dangerous to the United States of America. Acting in what manner? What are you talking about? Getting things done? Look, I'm not going to defend Trump when he's wrong. I certainly am not going to do that, but acting in what manner? No, what what mean, manner this, this are you talking about? continues to be the narrative of the uh, narcissistic, brain-dead left. I don't know what other way to put it. Well, and, and there it is. And, and that, that's just the way it is. You know, Another issue over the last several months, and we've been talking about the weird obsession some people have about fake news. Um, or I shouldn't say weird obsession, over fake news. Take the election results that, um, results of the election that, that were put in with fake news, for example. Focusing on fake news as a problem in and of itself was not only and not merely Pointless, but it did have a point. It does have a point, I believe. It, would, it has and it is quickly morphing into calls for censorship, and that's the objective of fake news. The censorship power would be in the hands of whoever got to define what fake news is. Thus, it was very, um, it was, I guess we'd expect this to see China and Iran quickly starting to use fake news as an, an, an excuse to uh, to crack down on the on the dissent online and and well, China already does better. that maybe not under the guise of fake news but i mean they'll just come right out and say we're not like the inauguration is a great example of that they banned live streaming of the inauguration as well as um instructed websites that they were not allowed to have an inauguration story on the top of their news stations well, I mean, they come right out and say what they want to ban and, and why they want to ban it in China. Yeah, I, I, but, but look, look look at it here in the United States. And I, I understand that in China. I understand that whole concept of of censorship. But here... I'm saying they don't need fake news. Well, uh, no, the government regulates the news. But, but here, the, 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 there are a few people who want to regulate the news. And, and, and we had said this before. We had, we had sounded alarm bells on this before. Um, there are a number of people here who are focused on fake news, and it must be stopped. It's got to be stopped. The latest to step in with a suggestion is MSNBC through their chief legal correspondent, Ari Melber, who is suggesting that fake news uh, can be regulated by the FTC in the same way it goes after fraudulent advertisers who fake websites pretending to be impartial news sites, take, uh, talking up the waters of uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but but in this case, uh, his Melber's idea is exquisitely framed to make it sound like a good idea to some. Kind of like you can't yell fire, uh, but it but even even in a crowded theater, uh, unless there's a fire, of course. But but that's kind of the 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 approach. Now 
some might say, well, wait a minute, it's a good thing to regulate fake news. Okay, okay if, you, if, if you're stupid, I'll just say this. If you're, and then I'll turn it over to you. If you're stupid enough to believe that you know the aliens landed on the on the White House lawn and and some reptilian got out with uh, Elvis Presley, and and you know um, sacrificed the chicken uh, to Hillary Clinton, that then that that's on you. Well, this is a good example of a story that uh, is a continuation of a, a story that came out at the end of last week that did not get a lot of coverage. How do you fight fake news when it is? Um, created by a government agency for the purpose of uh, continuing and expanding a narrative. This time, global warming, uh, this latest article from the Daily Mail says, how world leaders have been duped into investing billions over manipulated global warming data. The main story here uh, that came out last week was NOAA, America's, America's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, broke its own rules and manipulated Massive amounts of global warming data that never existed. That's fake news. Exactly. And look at the effects of this. They say how world leaders were duped into investing billions over manipulated global warming data. And all the the um, societal guilt on, oh, you need to lower your carbon footprint and, you know, we're going to all be underwater in three years if we continue on this pace. All of it was manipulation. All yeah. the numbers that NOAA used, which scientists then used as a defense for global warming, were faked. Well, we look. We know. Uh, we know about this. I, it, it's my contention that when you start regulating content, then you've got a, a, a then you've got pure censorship. When and they start regulating, when the government says you cannot say this, right? But what okay. happens when anti-global warming news is you know labeled fake news? Is you know very um, much yes. They, they and, and that speaks to my point. I think we all understand that there are sources out there who are, who, who, through trust can be relied upon, through experience can be relied upon. Certainly the corporate media, including but not limited to MSNBC, this uh, Ari Melber who's saying, well, we need to regulate fake news, to me is not one that can be relied upon, especially when the likes of uh, Chris Matthews and Rachel Maddow get out there and spew out their, their venomous uh, tripe about the, uh, they're, they're communist heroes. But having said that, to regulate fake news sounds very laudable if that was possible. Oh, it sounds great, but it's nothing more than censorship wrapped up in the pretext of protecting you from, um, fr- from damages. Oh, these damages. What about your crap? And I'm serious. If, I really think, that this whole fake news narrative that has been created was created and designed specifically to, uh, to, for, for censorship purposes. And I had a, ch- a chance to speak with Malik Jones today and, and we'll, that's one thing that we, we talked about. Um, and the purveyor, as you said, Joe, uh, of fake news was, uh, and is the government. Mm-hmm. Because look what they did with Pizzagate. Look how they framed that. And if you, and here's another thing. If you go on, on, on uh, the internet and you look up Pizzagate or, yeah, Pizzagate uh, theory, find it on Wikipedia. I haven't looked here recently, so it could have changed. I'd be surprised if it did, but what does it say? It's a conspiracy theory. Unfounded, unproven, made up by, by, uh, idiots, basically. Really, no. Let me, uh, let me just say this on a lighter note. Yep. Uh, that comes up, Pizzagate, Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Yeah, there it is, right? 
But on a lighter note, folks, have you taken care of your, your, your beautiful wife, your mother, your aunt, your sister? Have you taken care of that significant other for, um, Valentine's Day? Are you tired of guessing what she wants for Valentine's Day? Wouldn't you love an easy, fail-proof way to look like a pro this year? Guys, I already took care of my wife. I got her flowers for Valentine's Day. They're just not here yet. You see, this is the beautiful thing about pro flowers. You can get it go on their website and order them in advance and select a delivery date. Folks, go to proflowers.com. Use our code word Hagman in the mic box, H-A-G-M-A-N-N. But here's, here's an even better deal. To our listeners only and viewers only, go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the banner on the link, that link, that banner for Hagman Report, Pro Flowers at HagmanReport.com. Click on that. It'll take you to our own URL at Pro Flowers. They set us up nice. Then make, put in Hagman code and you're going to see all sorts of great deals. On top of their already low prices right now, you can get two dozen assorted roses with a free glass vase for $29.99 plus shipping and handling. Or you can upgrade for just 10 bucks more. This is the greatest deal. That's right here. 10 bucks more. You can get two dozen long stem assorted roses with a premium vase and chocolate. So spend the extra 10 bucks. It's worth it. Just go to proflowers.com. Use our code Hagman. Help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Use our code Hagman at proflowers.com. You can pick up your flowers or pick your flowers and then check out in under two minutes or two minutes or less. And I've done it and I love it. It's simple. It's easy. Here's the only way to get two dozen assorted roses with a free glass vase starting at twenty nine ninety nine. But I would upgrade to the ten ninety nine with ten or nine ninety nine more upgrade uh, and get uh, an extra. Uh, uh, you get two dozen long stem roses and a premium vase and chocolates. Just go to proflowers.com. Use our code word Hagman. Help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Use our code Hagman. That's proflowers.com. Click on the microphone and type in Hagman. That's all. Don't wait. Order today. This deal does expire soon. I'm going to tell you that before we got going here. And, and I just, but Joe, oh, you know what? Coming up, we've got, uh, Melissa we, Odin. Oh, wow. From Survivors, Survivors Guilt to Forgiveness and Abortion Survivors Intimate Story of Suffering, Guilt, yeah. Grace, and Reconciliation. I watched your, I watched your testimony in front of Congress today. Yeah, uh, John sent that over. We're going to talk about that as well as, uh, the testimony from Melissa Odin and what she is doing today. Yeah. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stain by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, we've got a wonderful treat for for you. My goodness, um, we've got a lady, a young woman, who is not supposed to be here. Not meaning not this show, but is not supposed to be alive today. Um, her name is Melissa Odin, and she's got a, she has got a heartwarming, heart wrenching, heartwarming, informational, inspirational story to tell you about. And you know we often talk about books on this broadcast. We we do. I man, I, I got an email the other day. It was over the weekend saying, "You're the best book salesman." <laughs> yeah, so all you do is talk about books. Well, this one in particular is one that will touch your heart and inform you and inspire you and make you understand that you are here that you, that God gave you life for a reason. You will never look at your life in the same way. Again, it's called You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir. And uh, the author is just a, a wonderful, wonderful lady that I, I don't know personally, but I do know through her congressional testimony. And 
she's with us right now. Before we get to her, folks, Sherry's Berries. I can't wait to tell you that we're in, we're going to be announcing this here in the next day or so. Sherry's Berries gave us this is allowing us to participate to give you free certificates, like fifty dollars gift certificates of Sherry's Berries through a contest that we're going to run. I, I can't wait to tell you more about it, more about that uh, probably tomorrow. Oh, it's it, it's. I asked, I asked them. I said, "Can you give our audience something?" And Sherry's Berries, of course, is. Uh, they stepped up and said, "Absolutely, your audience, absolutely." But folks, Sherry's Berries. If you go to berries.com, that's berries.com. They have gifts like no other for you, your loved one, whatever. Um, there's no one like your Valentine. You know that. This year, treat them to an unforgettable gift that's unique, as, un- as unique as they are. And we've, uh, we, we, last show we showed a box of Sherry's Berries, but right now, with Valentine's Day around the corner, uh, there's only one way to get Sherry's Berries, starting at 1999. Just visit berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in Hagman. That's H-A-G-M-A-N-N. Sherry's Berries at Berries. It's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Type in the code word Hagman. More on that later. Joe? Yeah, um, our guest for the next 90 minutes is Melissa Odin. And want to give a quick thanks to Karen Campbell from Karen Campbell Media for setting this up. Uh, Melissa Odin is an author, a Christian motivational speaker who founded the Abortion Survivors Network and speaks nationwide. She has a book, You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir that was just released on January 9th, 2017. Melissa, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. And your story's been gaining a yeah. lot of traction as of late, uh, from what John said that it, it really took off on, on social media. And it's great to have you on the show. We're looking forward to, to hearing your testimony and your story. Where would you like to start tonight? Oh, you guys decide. I could talk forever, trust me. Well, we understand you were 14 when you learned that you were an abortion survivor. Now, you're, you were born in, I think, what, 1977, correct? Mm-hmm. August of 1977. Why don't we start in August of 1977? Why don't we start with what happened there? That's when I, again, when I heard your congressional testimony, um, I, I thought everyone, I believe everyone needs to hear that, but you lay it all out for us. Yeah. And, you know, in reality, even though people thought that congressional testimony was very powerful, which, you know, it was, I, I told you earlier, right? It was the grace of God. But, um, the long version of the story is what I wish Congress could hear. And so my story started 39 years ago in a little town in Iowa called Sioux City. And what I know now is that my birth mother was actually forced against her will to undergo a saline infusion abortion. And that type of procedure was the most common one back in the 1970s. It actually involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding the preborn baby in the womb. And the intent of that toxic salt solution was to poison the child, and it would burn away the top layer of skin, and ultimately that child, of course, would be killed in the womb, and then premature labor would be induced with the intent of that deceased child being delivered. And usually that would happen within about 72 hours. So that procedure was forced upon my biological mother. I was subjected to that toxic salt solution, But my medical records actually indicate that I didn't soak in that toxic salt solution for just 72 hours. They actually indicate that I soaked in it for five. 
They tried numerous times over those five days to induce my birth mother's labor with me. Uh, and I often joke, I'm really stubborn. I wasn't going anywhere quickly. Um, but as much as I can joke about that, you know, the reality is I was subjected to that solution even longer. And on that fifth day, they finally succeeded, induced her labor at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa, believing that I would be this quote-unquote successful abortion. And lo and behold, I was born alive. That's what many people in the abortion industry call a dreaded complication. But, okay, a dreaded complication, go figure. The the birth of a living human being, a dreaded complication. Okay, but it didn't stop there. This nightmare, unfortunately, didn't stop there. Yeah, it keeps on going, right? So I know now that the person who actually forced the abortion on my birth mother was actually a member of my family. It was my maternal grandmother. She was a nurse, a prominent one in the community. Um, And so with the help of the local abortionist, they forced this abortion upon my birth mother um, and, and didn't believe, of course, right, that anybody would ever find out what they did to her, and they would most certainly never find out about me. And so, you know, here I was delivered alive, and, you know, unfortunately my grandmother was there when I was delivered, and she is the very person who actually demanded that I be left in that room to die. You know, we hear about things like this still happening today, that abortionists or nurses are there when children like me are born alive and and those children are left to die or demands are made that that's what should happen. And in my case, it just happened to me, my grandmother. And just actually when I was finishing the book, what I actually learned is that there was a nurse who who rushed me from that room to the neonatal intensive care unit um, because, in her words, she said she she was gasping for breath, and I was not going to leave her there to die. And so that nurse rushed me off to the NICU, believing that maybe if other people found out that the abortion had failed and I was alive, then maybe, just maybe, they would provide that medical care to me that sustained my life. And that's why I'm here today, because those nurses did their job that day. They provided medical care to me, and it sustained my life. Um. I don't know how far I can go and we can go in questions, but did that? Okay, so. You can ask me just about anything I like to think. Okay. So, all right. You were, you were to be aborted in August of 77. They injected saline into, into your mother's womb, expecting you to be aborted. Um, what month, I mean, were you full term at that point or? That's a very good question. So on my medical records, the abortionist actually indicated that he thought she was about 20 weeks pregnant with me. But the fact that I was able to live and I weighed almost three pounds, I was two pounds, 14 ounces when I was delivered, actually makes it pretty clear she was much further along in her pregnancy than what the abortionist indicated. And in my medical records, one of the first notations by a neonatologist after I survived, was that I looked like I was about 31 weeks gestational age. Oh, wow. So was that a a mistake, or was that a misrepresentation on the medical records initially? I don't know that I'll never know the answer. You know, I don't think I'll ever know the answer to that. But what I do know is that God knew the truth. That's right. Yeah. God knew the truth. 
Okay, so, all right, so you were supposed to be aborted, hence you were, well, nonetheless, you were born by the grace of God, and praise God, um, and the nurses there rescued you, but, but the, the one nurse that was there wanted to just leave you, it, it, just leave you? To die? Well, and you prob- you may remember from my congressional testimony, you know, I actually know where children like me were placed at that hospital. Um, you know, my adoptive parents had heard some rumblings over the years, and, you know, we didn't, we try not to think about it, right, because yeah. it's really terrible to think about. But I met a nurse just a few years ago, actually, when I was speaking somewhere, and she was just sobbing when she came up and spoke with me, and she was apologizing, and, and I said, you know, you don't need to apologize. And she said, but I do she said, I delivered a little boy a year before you in the same type of abortion procedure, and he was born alive also. But she said, instead of providing him medical care, I did what my superior told me to do, and that was to put him in a bucket of formaldehyde in the utility closet. And she would, they would write the baby's name on that bucket, and they would leave the baby there until their life had ended, and then they would be picked up later. Um, and disposed of as medical waste. So that was meant to be my fate okay. that day. All right. And, um, and, well, and I, I, I'm sorry if this, if anything, is, no, it's okay. this is kind of, this is what I do. Wow. I don't know. You know, I don't know if I'd have seriously. I don't know if I'd have your courage to to talk about this. I, I, wow. All right. Um, so you go through your childhood. At what point do you? Find out, and how do you find out? Yeah, under what that you survived the abortion? I'm trying to think of the circumstances that you. Right. How do you how do you go about having this conversation? Right. Yeah. You're in a coffee shop one day, and bam, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can joke about it now, right? Because as you can probably guess, I get a lot of questions from people as I, you know, I travel around the world, and it's inevitably, are you flying for business or pleasure? And I kind of go <laughs> both, and then you wait for the. For people to ask more questions, right? So, <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard to strike up the conversation. But what happened, actually, is that I, I was adopted not long after I survived. And so grew up knowing I was adopted, never questioned that, had any concerns about it. You know, my parents did this amazing job of helping my older sister, who's also adopted, helping us know that adoption meant that we were loved, and not just by them, but by our biological parents. You know, that was a gift that they gave us our family when they couldn't care for us. And so, you know, that was, life was a blessing to me. And it wasn't until I was 14 years old that the truth about my survival came to light. But it was only through a very unplanned set of, set of circumstances. My older sister, as a high school student, faced an unplanned pregnancy. And even though we were raised in a home with very strong faith and very clear beliefs about abortion and and adoption, my sister was contemplating what all of her options were at the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that no matter how scared she was, she ultimately told our parents that she was pregnant and considering options. And, you know, our parents felt called by God to tell her the story of my survival, hoping that she would understand just how deep of a decision she was facing. And so it was after my sister found out the story of my survival that she let it slip to me during an argument. She didn't know that I didn't know. And so she actually said to me, you know, Melissa, at least my biological parents wanted me. 
Ooh. And I thought, really low blow, right? Wow. Yeah, it was, it was epic. Oh. And, and so, you know, that night I, I actually turned around to say something back to her because I was so hurt. And when I went to say something back to her, though, the look on her face really just fell. And that's when she figured out that I didn't know. And so she just said that night, she, she actually said that. She said, you don't know, do you? And I kept saying, no, what? I mean, what am I supposed to know? And she said, oh, wait up for mom and dad tonight and ask them to tell you the truth, and you will see. And so I did. I waited up that night, and it was actually our mom that came in, and I told her about the argument and, you know, was fully expecting to just get in trouble for arguing the way that we were. Uh, and instead, the conversation took this really huge turn because in the midst of really hours-long conversation, my mom finally spoke the words. She said, Missy, your biological mother had an abortion during her pregnancy with you, and you survived it. Gracious. That was devastating. Y- yeah. Uh, Eric the Tech, um, we're, we're sending out Melissa Sherry's Berries and Pro Flowers just because, man, <laughs> I'm telling you, seriously. Uh, wow. Okay, so, uh, all right. Um, what are some of the wow. uh, the emotions that, that came when you when you found out yeah. the truth about your past? Well, it's, I think if you can feel every human feeling at, at once, you know, I, I felt them that night. I was angry. You know, I never felt anger towards my biological parents before because, yeah, I was raised to, to love them and respect them for what they did for me. And so that night really changed it initially for me because I couldn't understand how anybody could make that kind of decision about my life. You know, the, the good news is I didn't stay angry for very long because my faith has made it possible for me to know that I have nothing to be angry about. Uh, but I did. I felt anger that night, and I was scared, you know, I didn't know who I was anymore. Here I was 14. I was just trying to figure out who I was in the first place. And then to find out that I had this other story to my life, and and I felt very alone. Uh, I felt very ashamed and embarrassed because even though things have changed a lot in our culture, gratefully, you know, back then a lot of people said things like, well, it's just a clump of tissue, it's a blob of cells, it doesn't have a soul yet. And we still hear the, well, it's a woman's choice, it's a right. You know, we hear all of those things. And so here I was, 14 years old, trying to process all of this. And all of those perceptions of other people weighed very heavily on me. I felt guilty for surviving. You know, I spent years of my life questioning why God spared my life and why I'm perfectly healthy today. The doctors didn't initially believe that I would live for very long. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What kind of effects? I mean, again, I I don't... (laughs) It's okay. uh, Because the saline is is supposed to burn you alive. 72 hours, but you were there for five days. Yeah, typically if you Google it, uh, and I always have to warn people, like, be... Be warned that you will come across some images that you won't forget. Uh, you often hear children like me called red-skinned or candy-appled babies because that toxic salt solution would turn the skin bright red as it peeled it away and moved internally into the organs. You know, you can see pictures of babies with blackened, mottled skin because of what the toxic solution did. Um, and I've heard horror stories from way too many medical professionals about the children like me. 
um, after the abortion procedure. So, you know, miraculously, um, I was not scalded. Uh, and, and there is no medical reason why I wasn't scalded. There is no medical reason why anybody like me exists. You know, I was just actually talking to a nurse since the book has been published. She read the book and said, Melissa, I've been following you for a while, and I thought I knew who you were, and I know now that it's you. She was in the NICU the day that the door came flying open, and that nurse rushed me in. And um, the words out of that other nurse's mouth who, who rescued me, and she said that blankety blank Dr. Kelberg messed up. Oh. Oh. And, and that's okay. That's okay. You know what? That was that was their medical perception, right? That that he messed up, that he made some kind of mistake, and that's why I was alive. And and like I said, I don't, I can't explain it. I don't know it. Um, but that nurse told me just recently, she said, we used to stare at you in the NICU and just say what a miracle you were. Um, I struggled initially. I had, I suffered from seizures, respiratory, liver problems. Um, the doctors thought I might be blind, that I would suffer from multiple emotional or mental disabilities. But by the time I was five years old, I had a clean bill of health. That, that, that's by the grace of God and, and, and obviously the strong-willed woman. <laughs> uh, my goodness, and uh, uh, beautiful, if I might add. There's, you know, um, if I'm allowed, am I allowed to say that, or am I kind of getting in trouble with like one of the regulatory agencies? Uh, Melissa Odin is our guest. Her book, um, folks, you got to get this. It's just a wonderful, just just a wonderful uh, uh, tale. You, you carry an account, not a tale. You carried me a daughter's memoir. It's supposed to be. Uh, Boarded and uh, wow, my goodness! And check out Melissa's website, m e l i s s a o h d e n dot com. Melissa Odin dot com. Yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, so wow, so many, so many places to go from here, and so many questions. Uh, you so at fourteen, you found out the truth, and that was that's an incredible story by itself. Like, can you imagine just that the whole process? Um, and learning the circumstances of of your birth and that you survived. Uh, yeah, how did that affect your your teenage years? Yeah, I had to blow your. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys are headed on the right path. Yes, it it blew my world apart. Um, you know, when I talk about it in the book, I I went into it probably in deeper detail than I ever have before, of course, because this is a very personal look at my life, but. You know, I was kind of the perfect kid growing up, and and my parents still say that. Like, you were the perfect kid. Mm, I was on the outside. You know, I was the kid who was always hardworking, got straight A's, you know, was in extracurriculars, held down a job, helped took care of siblings, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was I was the perfect kid. But what people didn't know is that all the while I was in so much pain after I found out about my survival. You know, I struggled with alcohol abuse, poor relationships. Um, I, I developed an eating disorder because I desperately wanted to control something, right? Even because I couldn't control my past, and so I tried to control something else. And I know that most people can never understand what it's like to be in my shoes, but I think a lot of people know what it's like to go something through something really painful especially in such a, a very important time of growing up. And so I struggled in a huge way. And 
you know, the, the reality is that I think, I, you know, the Lord blessed me with a pretty clear head um, to know that all of those choices I was making were not helping me. They were making my life much more difficult, and it was getting kind of hard to keep it under wraps. And so, you know, thankfully, my faith really allowed me the opportunity to 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 realize that, you know, I don't have to run from myself. I don't have to run from myself. God didn't make any mistakes with me, and he doesn't with anybody else. Um, and that I have a family who loves me. And that no matter how hard it was, you know, years ago, I first forgave my biological parents. I didn't know back then that the abortion was forced upon my birth mother. But what I did know in my heart is that their lives had to have been changed after that day. And so, so I forgave them. And really, you know, somebody brought this up to me the other day, and it really clicked with me. When I forgave them, that, that enabled me to, to heal myself. And I think that's an important point for a lot of people. Wow. And to me, that would be so difficult to, for forgiveness, but, but I, I think you're right. How, how, um, reassuring or, or I'm tongue tied because, you know, you think about that, that to me it's an act of murder, but I can understand, I can almost understand the being cornered in that position and having to, uh, I, I feel I feel bad for your birth mother, certainly. Um, wow, well, ah, just just we were all wow. victims. We were all victims. Yeah, and and I think what we don't hear about in our culture, and this was important to me long before I found out that my birth mother was forced. You know, I didn't find that out until about four years ago. Um, but long before that, I started really advocating not just for children like me, but for women like my biological mother. And uh, the Elliott Institute has a statistic that tells us that over 64% of women, 64% identify feeling pressured into their abortion. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? uh, Yeah, I never knew that statistic. 64% feel pressured. 64, 64. Mm Okay. I would tell you is in my in the in the circumstances you know when I meet and talk with women or when people are reaching out to me on social media I would tell you that the number of women that I hear from who say that they were coerced or even forced into their abortion is probably even higher than that That, that's that's an amazing statistic Melissa hold on right there if you you don't mind Uh, we're going to come right back to you folks uh, well our guest is Melissa Odin visit her website which is in the description part on our program uh what an amazing account what an amazing story her her grab a hold of her book of course you carried me um subtitled a daughter's memoir grab a hold of her book it's it's an amazing tale watch you can watch on on video her appearance in front of congress giving her testimony but before you get back to her uh Guys, guys, Valentine's Day, not too far away. You can give a gift like no other for your loved one who's like no other. And certainly our guest tonight is like no other, believe me. Uh, how would you like to have, guys, for your special lady, freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries? It starts, they start right at $19.99 plus shipping. Or you can double the berries for just $10 more. Go to berries.com, that's berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S, and use our code HAGMANS, help support our show. 
by supporting our sponsors. Use our code word Hagman. You know, these berries are the best. We got a box the other day. Joe, you had some. Uh, Eric, I think you were sniffing around. And, uh, anyway, uh, they're fresh. They're sweet. They're shareable. They're irresistible. You can choose your different, uh, how they're dipped and tempting milk and dark chocolate. They're, uh, some are chocolate, uh, chocolate chips, others with nuts, decorative swizzles. They're just beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're delicious. With Valentine's Day, we're right around the corner. Right now, there's only one way to get Sherry's Berries starting at 19.99. Just visit berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com, and click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner. Type in Hagman. That's berries.com. Use our code word Hagman. Help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Use our code word Hagman. Uh, we're talking with Melissa Odin, and uh, we're going to be back with her on the other side of the break. Folks, what an amazing woman. God doesn't make any mistakes, right? And certainly not with Melissa Odin. In fact, Melissa Odin, we're so fortunate to have her. What a miracle. And, Joe, who, who we got to thank. Um, Karen Campbell Media. Karen, Karen Campbell, Campbell Media. Karen. God bless you. Thank you for giving us the gift of, of Melissa Odin tonight. Folks, we're right back. Stay right where you're at because it's getting good. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. But what Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, you need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available, anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Perhaps you're a business out there, a small business. Would you like to extend the reach of your business? I bet you would. Would you like to to have the same opportunities as companies such as Omaha Steaks and Pro Flowers and Casper Mattress and some of the bigger companies out there? Would you like to have that same power? Advertise on our program. Go to HagmanandHagman.com or send an email to opportunities at HagmanandHagman.com. If you go to HagmanReport.com and HagmanandHagman.com, there's a link where you can, you can, you can, it's a big red box. You'll see it. You'll see it. Click on that link. And go ahead and read the benefits we have created for you. I think it's I think it's a fabulous opportunity. For investors, Timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, 
Trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our number two of this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Our guest this hour is Melissa Odin. Go to her website, uh, melissaodin.com. It's on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening, it is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-O-H-D-E-N.com. She's the author of You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir. It was just released on January 9th of this year, 2017. Now, Melissa Odin was 14 when she learned that she was an abortion survivor. And she, this is what her book is about, You Carried Me. She describes her decade-long search to find and forgive her biological parents. I don't want to go any further than that yeah. because we, we haven't really gotten that far yet. Um, before the break, Melissa, you were talking about um, your learning of um, your story of birth and how that affected you as a, as a teenager, and you had some uh, destructive-type behavior, uh, eating disorder you mentioned and how does that translate into you wanting to find your birth parents yeah you know there's there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to find my biological parents you know first of all it was to try to find the answers right you know that was the burning question of why did this decision have to be made about my life in the first place um, but the other flip side of that was that I wanted them to know that I knew the truth about my life and and I'm not, I'm not angry or bitter. You know, that was important to me, that they know that that there is no, you know, anger on my part. And, and I was hoping that that would maybe set them free in their own lives. And so I started looking for them when I was 19. Didn't find them until I was about 30 years old. So it wasn't until 2007 that I actually found them. And, you know, I talk about it a lot in the book. I, I, I didn't spend every moment of those 10 years searching, but... I did spend a lot of time, and, you know, it was kind of like piecing together a puzzle, right? I I had information about my biological family, and, you know, so I would kind of go searching, and there might be one little piece that I could obtain, but then maybe a door would close, right? And so it really was this process where I had to trust that that God had a plan in this. And um, I'm a very... um, I'm a type A personality. You know, I like to, I, I want to do it and I want to get it done and I want to do it right the first time I see you smiling. Um, I love and, it. <laughs> so, I love it. Um, and that makes sense to people, right? When they see me sometimes they're like, oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so those 10 years of searching, I had to learn that I'm really not in control, right? Um, that that God is ultimately in control of everything and that I couldn't just snap my fingers and find my biological family and obtain my medical records. Um, so those were some really important years in my life. And, and truly, I got to this point in, like, 2006 
um, where I actually prayed and just said, you know, Lord, if it's your will, let it be done. I will get out of the way. Um, and truly, I feel like that opened a lot of doors for me because I finally reached the end of myself. And so really within about six months of that, I finally obtained my medical records after being told no, 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 no <laughs> throughout those 10 years. <laughs> ultimately found my biological family and started speaking publicly at about the same time. So that God's timing is perfect. Uh, how did how did your biological parents react? I mean, I, I we we have I think we have the general idea, but uh um I'm just curious that they could have I mean, wow. Were, were they married uh, together? I mean, to each other? No. So I now know that um, my birth parents were actually engaged to be married um, at the time that that abortion was forced upon my birth mother. And, you know, sadly, I really do believe they were probably one another's true love. Um, they really did love one another deeply. And and I, I really do believe that they would have married and parented me if they, they had been given that opportunity. But that was taken away from them. And so when I found my biological father, so actually here's how it unfolded. Um, I obtained my medical records, which are included in my book. I've showed them to Congress a couple times. Um, but And in those medical records, it, it actually talks about how a saline infusion abortion was done but was not successful. It also lists the complication of my birth mother's pregnancy as a saline infusion abortion. You could say that it complicated things. Mm. Um, and as hard as it was to actually read through some of that, you know, I, I did experience a lot of joy because in one little spot, they forgot to black out my birth parents' names. That's oh. how I actually found out who my birth parents were, not through my own, you know, 10 years of sleuthing. I learned it by somebody committing a HIPAA violation. Wow. <laughs> that, that's, ama- that, that, that's amazing. That, that, yeah. That's one heck of a oops. Yeah, okay. yeah. I used to call that divine intervention, but Amen. um, uh, yeah. wow. But okay. when I parents were, what I actually learned is that I was living in the same city as my biological father. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, I had moved there during my years of searching to finish my master's degree, and so there was my biological father and so I ended up contacting him a few months after that sent him a letter to his office and um, and not his home because I didn't know if he'd ever told his family about me so I told him you know everything I've told you all tonight I know the truth I'm not angry I'm not bitter you know I'm just very blessed and I said you know here we are in the same city if you ever want to connect or have a relationship and it's been almost 10 years now since I sent that letter, and I never heard back from him. And I was kind of expecting that. And maybe you guys were too. You know, I, I spent a lot of years preparing for that possibility that maybe maybe my birth family didn't want to hear from me. But as you're going to hear about in just a second, it's actually much, much more complicated than that uh, because life is messy. Um, but about that same time, I, I went searching for my birth mother, couldn't find her back in 2007 because she married somebody else after the abortion took place. And so I couldn't find her, but I found her parents, you know, that grandmother that I told you all mm-hmm. about. I sent them a letter and asked for them to reach out to my birth mother on my behalf, never expecting to hear anything back. 
But within days, my grandfather actually replied. And, you know, he was gracious enough to admit that he knew I knew my live birth was not the intention that day at the hospital. I think that was very courageous of him. Wow. And, you know, unfortunately, he let me know in that letter that my messages would not be passed along to my birth mother because they were completely estranged. And it makes sense now. You know, now that I know what happened 39 years ago, it makes great sense that their relationship was forever altered. And, you know, that's part of what I spend a lot of my time talking to people about in our world is that, you know, abortion doesn't just end a life. It changes the lives of the women and the men and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles, the siblings, the friends, right? The list goes on and on. All of these lives are forever impacted, and a lot of relationships are changed or they're ended, unfortunately, um, through abortion, and it, it affects generations. And so what happened in our family is very unique in the respect that I survived, uh, but we're not alone in how abortion has affected us. Mm. Wow. Okay. And, and we don't think about this. Uh, it, it's... We, the word abortion to me, or when people talk about it, it's some clinical, straightforward thing that just happens and there's no, it's absent of any emotion. It's, it's just, it's too clean. You know? Yeah, it's uh, like a, uh, a medical term almost. It's a, it's, there's a disconnect between the word and the actual procedure that takes place. It's almost like, you know, people Melissa, have been desensitized to it. Right. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, having your appendix out. It's no big deal or, or even less than that, uh, less obtuse than that. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's legal, right? I mean, if I had a penny for every time I hear that, it's, hmm. you know, it's legal and it's a choice and it's a right. And so we, we use all of these words to talk about it. But when you peel back the rhetoric, or the clinical terms, what you'll find is the detrimental impact that it has on so many people's lives. If we, going off script, not that we have one, but I'm just curious, as you look out over this landscape of women, they're, you know, uh, get your hands out of my, your tiny hands out of my uterus and, um, all of these catchy, sickening phrases that they have, um, what are your thoughts? I mean, what are your thoughts when you look at the, what's happening today, uh, the, the cavalier attitude that, that people have with respect to abortion and women in particular, the, the, the fact that, you know, it's my uterus, my body, my choice. What's, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I bet you do. <laughs> hey, hang on a second. Let me, let me stand back and then sit back because I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you realize I'm passionate, too, besides being a type A, right? That's right. Um, yeah. Um, you know, my first thought is that, and, and I, this is one of those things I also am pretty clear with people about. When we realize that we've lost about 58 million lives to abortion since the Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions, so we've lost 58 million lives, think for a second about how many women's lives have been impacted by that. How many men, you know, all those extended family members, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people whose lives have been forever impacted by abortion, whether they realize it and want to acknowledge it or not. And so when we have, you know, hundreds of millions of people who have been wounded by abortion, 
it makes great sense that we see people making the kind of decisions, saying the kind of statements, you know, waving the kind of signs that we see in our world. You know, I truly believe that that's where the majority of that comes from. Do I believe that some people want to just stand on the soapbox and say it's legal and it's a right who haven't been hurt by abortion? Yeah, there probably are some. Um, but I also do truly believe that, that so many people have an untold story, um, whether it's them or somebody else that they know that's impacted them. But even though I know that, and, and I truthfully, I do choose to live out my life extending grace to people, even when they tell me, gosh, you know what, you couldn't just die like you were supposed to, or your birth mother clearly couldn't do anything right, you know, I I get those statements thrown at me from time to time, um, but I also have to beg the question in our world, and I've done it a lot lately, um, with all of these marches going on in the name of feminism, you know, I always have to raise the question and say, if abortion is about a woman's rights, then where were mine? Where were mine, and where are the rights of my two daughters who wow. never would have lived if that abortion would have succeeded in ending my life? And I'll be very honest, nobody has ever responded to that question. They can't. There's no, there is no response that makes any sense. Um, back to what wow. you were saying, how people told you why. By the way, that's just, a conversation stopper right there. Yeah, why, why don't you, why didn't you just die like you're supposed to? Is that a sarcastic remark you've gotten, or are people serious when they say that? <laughs> I, I'm not completely sure, to be honest. You know, I call those my keyboard courageous comments, right? Oh, okay. Them happen behind the screen, um, and so people would not typically approach me with them. Um, and so, yeah, and we all are, are kind of fall prey to that, right, that people say things on the Internet, but, but mm. people who are actively pro-life and, and who have a story to tell are, are often um, picked out of the crowd to have those things tossed at them. And if we can, I want to, before I forget, you we had an email about the 64%. You said that mm-hmm. the number of abortions that women are forced or feel pressured is about mm-hmm. 64%. Uh, yep. The one emailer says that that seems rather low. Uh, mm-hmm. But it doesn't, to me, when you think of... Um, you have this this uh, hyper feminist movement and the the pro choice movement, where you know I when I think of abortion, I usually think about fifty percent. Men don't even have a say if they want the abortion or not. Um, but you say sixty four percent of women uh, feel pressured. Uh, it's extending that to what we uh, know today about the note you talk about uh, fifty eight to sixty five million people have had abortions. Um, and you're, in your case, you you said that it was forced by your your grandparents, mm-hmm, my grandmother, mm-hmm. your mother, and it wasn't something you, that your mother wanted. No. How did you that know, affect the the? Well, your your parents were still together. How did that affect the uh, relationship between? It ended. Oh, that ended due to the. Um, okay. Yeah, and you know this has been an interesting journey for me, and. And it's been, well, I guess one of the most interesting pieces for me that is not surprising, but, you know, after the book was released, what I'm hearing from is from so many other people who have gone through difficult or secretive um, circumstances in their families. You know, I think there are so many different secrets that are kept. And so I've spent years trying to uncover these, these secrets. And thankfully, 
you know, my biological mother and, and her family has helped me piece it together. But, you know, what I do know is that um, my grandparents had tried before this to end the relationship between my biological parents. And so this was probably a really great opportunity for them to drive the final wedge. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because, um, like I said, I really do believe that they were probably one another's true great loves. And so I don't even know if my birth father ever knew that I survived. Yeah, that's kind of, that would have been one of my questions early on, and we kind of skipped that, but when you sent the letter and he didn't respond. Even going back, uh, if we, to, to the story of your, the, the surviving the abortion, was that the moment when your, your biological family said, alright, um, adoption is the way? Or, well, you, well, you, yeah, I guess where we presupposed that. Um, <laughs> go ahead. I did too. Um, you know, people would ask me a lot over the years, they'd say, well, you know, do you think your biological mother know, knew that you survived? And I'd always say, well, yeah, of course. I, I had an adoption plan made for me. Of course she would know. Except that she didn't. Except that she didn't. And there it is. Okay. So that's one of those great secrets that was told to me about four years ago through my birth mother's family. And so... You know, it's been very interesting to me because she did not know that I survived. was actually told that day, you know, when I was delivered, don't look at it. Don't look at it. It's hideous. Hmm. She didn't know that she had a little girl, you know. she And she didn't look, right, because she was afraid of just how horrific uh. things were going to be. And so she didn't look and she didn't know and she never questioned. And... um we have every reason to believe that my grandmother is the one who arranged the adoption without my birth mother's consent. And so, you know, my birth mother spent over 30 years of her life believing that I had died that day at the hospital. And it was with incredible regret and guilt. And um, and so it wasn't until I came forward publicly as a survivor and I started, you know, having that contact with her family that the secrets finally came spilled down to her. And so, you know, as shocking as that was to her, um, the beauty in it is that my birth mother now gets to experience something that so many, you know, tens of millions of women don't get to experience. She gets to experience that her child is alive and that I love her and that I have forgiven her and that I am willing to share the story with the world in the hopes that it makes a difference for somebody else. What a marvelous I mean, so I don't know. Wow, what a marvelous! Uh, I don't know if we we haven't got to the point in the story yet, but you talked about how you reached out to your your biological father and never received a response. You reached out to the the parents of your mother and you got a response from her father saying what what happened that day, but they're not going to tell your mother. How did right. you said that uh, from you going public? That's how your mother learned. Yeah, so that was in two thousand seven that I heard from my grandparents and really had had learned to just kind of let go and let God once again, right? And just know that if, if I was to ever find her or have contact, that it would happen. And in 2013, um, one of her cousins actually reached out to me and said, you know, there's so much more to this story um, that I would love to share with you. 
And so that's how I ultimately found out about it being forced on her, that my grandmother was responsible, that she didn't know that I survived. You know, we started emailing back and forth. I shared with her every little bit of record and information I could because, you know, sadly she never was, of course, had any record or information about what was done. Gotcha. And, um, mm. and so we spent a number of years just learning to get to know one another and and trust um, because I think that was hard for both of us because of things that we've been through in our lives. We had to learn to trust. And so uh, I actually had the book all completed um, last year and and was not planning to include a chapter on meeting her. And lo and behold, we met last year and we tacked on another chapter at the end. And oh, that was, And that was the most important chapter. So she basically assisted you in writing your, your book. She did. So not only did we include meeting, but, you know, of course, I gave the book to her and had her read it to make sure that, that she was comfortable with it. And there were certain things that I was considering leaving out, and I wanted to know what she felt about it. And, you know, not only did she read it, but she contributed even more to it, things that I never knew about um, the abortion and, and my birth parents' relationship. And just, I mean, a lot of things were new to me, too. Okay. Now, I've got to ask this. Your adoptive parents and your adopted family, uh, are your adopted parents, adoptive parents still alive? Uh, how are they handling all of this? My parents are amazing, as you can probably guess. I can guess, yes. <laughs> uh, my parents are both still alive, yes. And, um, you know, this is an interesting journey for them because they knew the truth about my life and protected me from it for as long as they possibly could. And um, they've they've gone through periods where they were afraid for me. You know, they were afraid of me getting hurt by searching for the truth, by wanting to connect with my biological family. You know, certainly living my life in the public eye in defense of life, you know, they have to see the way that I'm attacked sometimes. Um, and that's hard for them. But through it all, they have just remained steadfast, and and they well, support. Melissa, support attacked by whom? Uh, when you say when you are being attacked, attacked by who? Who would want to attack you? Uh, <laughs> seriously, and for what reason? What what basis? Um, you know, the liberal media takes their cracks from time to time, um, and, and why? Because we're a threat, right? Mm. Survivors are a threat to the narrative about abortion. And, and you know, it's always kind of funny to me. Like when I testified before Congress back in 2015, it was myself and Gianna Jessen, another survivor. And we both testified at the same time. That was pretty historic. And I think it was the L.A. Times who actually, you know, they covered the hearing and they put the words survivors in air quotes. Oh. And the media will often say things like they allege that they survived abortions. Okay. We've got medical records. My own family has admitted to it. You know, I've got the doctors and the nurses who I've had contact with who confirm and, and actually confirm worse than I ever could have imagined. But we know that the narrative that exists in our culture doesn't want to always accept lives like ours. Gotcha. And, and that's, that's, if we could that's touch on that for a second, I, I never understood how 
how people could just uh, discard a baby. And I guess you, you kind of referenced it earlier talking about how they don't look at it as a baby. And one thing that's always bothered me, and I don't know how much you've encountered this in, in what you're talking about, is a woman can be uh, pregnant, very pregnant, and go get an abortion and, and terminate the pregnancy and the life. But there could be a pregnant woman sitting in this room and I could have a gun and it accidentally goes off and if it shoots her in the stomach and, and kills the baby inside of her, I can be charged with murder. How does that... How do you even yeah, rationalize yeah, How do people how rationalize that? I know. And something, you know, something very interesting has happened in about the last mm, almost two years now, really after the Center for Medical Progress videos came out, you know, that talked about the harvesting of baby body parts and and them being sold. Um, what I saw, and I don't know if you all saw this too, but I've had a lot more people since that time who have kind of looked at me and said things online or said them out loud and said things like, yeah, we know it's a baby, and we don't care. Oh. We don't care. It's legal, and so we don't care. <laughs> and as far as you hear that, I think it's important that it paves a way, right, that we know what we're dealing with. We know what we're dealing with. Um, that there are people who are simply going to want to support abortion through thick and through thin, no matter what, um, to, to hold on to that belief. And I think it's we're in a day and time where so much momentum is building politically and legislatively uh, that I think a lot of people are getting very nervous who are pro-abortion. Very interesting, as well they should. And you talked about yeah. Center for Medical Progress. We only have about a minute left before the break. Were you surprised by how that they were attacked and how the 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 politics of that really was spun in the opposite direction? And by the way, we were attacked for supporting yeah. the Center for Medical Progress's investigative efforts. But anyway, yeah, were you mm-hmm. That means that I'm in good company with you guys tonight. No, you know what? I, unfortunately, I wasn't surprised by that. Um, that's the name of the game. Um, but I'm so proud of David and everyone. I think that, um, that he was made for just such a time as that, right? Right. Um, and, um, the truth has come out. I believe that more people know the truth than ever did. Um, and that's why we see some of that backlash. Interesting. Well, you hear that, you put, to, to those self-professed, self, self-identifying Christians who have attacked us because, oh, the Center for Medical Progress uh, committed some egregious acts. Put that in your sanctimonious pipe and smoke it. We have with us an abortion survivor. Yeah, Melissa Melissa Odin. She's also the founder of the Abortion Survivors Network, and we're going to hear more about that on the other side, as well as her book, which is You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir, um, that was uh, released on January 9, 2017. You can go to her website, melissaoden.com, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-O-H-D-E-N.com. Uh, if you just search the title of the book, You Carried Me, or her name, it will pop right up, melissaoden.com. She'll be with us for one more segment, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after these short and messages. we want to thank karencampbellmedia.com. Mm-hmm. karencampbellmedia.com. Stay with us.
Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Erickson. It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family, masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? From all of us at Training Post in the Woods. We pray you have a healthy, safe, and prosperous 2017. And we would like to thank all of you for welcoming us to the Hagman and Hagman family. You're all a very wonderful and special group of people. Because we believe it is so important for you to work and acquire good health this year, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a thank you to you for your support. We're going to make something available that we believe everyone needs. During the month of January, anyone who invests in their house by purchasing either our American Heritage Remedies Kit, our Survivalist Natural Remedies Kit, or $200 in individual remedies of your choice, we're going to give to you our crisis remedy just in case for free. Your health must be a part of your preparation plan. We're here to help you with that dream. May God bless y'all, and may God bless America. Happy New Year! This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Oh, my goodness. The story of Melissa Oden. You know, she was 14 when she learned that she was an abortion survivor. In her memoir, You Carried Me, she describes her decade-long search to find and forgive her biological parents. Her personal story of love and redemption cuts through the debates surrounding a divisive issue. To me, it shouldn't be divisive. But it touches our common humanity, at least those of us with the souls in my view it highlights her uh, it highlights the complexity of the abortion issue and invites more understanding and compassion for every woman impacted by abortion she said something so profound the last segment about uh, what about my rights 
and the rights of my children. You know, and that really, wow, you talk about a conversation stopper. Before we get back to our, our gracious guest, and, and folks, I would urge everyone to support uh, Melissa, support her by purchasing her book, support her network. We're going to be talking about that. But uh, stand behind this woman, this courageous and brave woman who I've got so much respect for. Before we get back to her, I'm going to speak to the small, medium, large business owners out there. If you're in charge of personnel, let me ask you a question. Are you in charge of hiring? Are you hiring? And if so, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job at one site at one location is not enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, folks, you need to post your job on all top job sites, and now you can. ZipRecruiter.com. Folks, write that down. ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter.com. You can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city, in any industry, nationwide, just once. Post it just once. Watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Now, I've used this interface. It's easy because there's no phone calls coming to your office. There's no emails independent of the interface. It's very, very simple. It's a way to quickly screen candidates. You can rate them and hire the right person extremely quickly and with efficiency. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses all across the United States. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Now, that's important. you got to put free trial in there after the slash. ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Go to HagmanReport.com, click on the link, and there you have it. Uh, look, we've, we have used this and it is a time saver. It is an efficiency, a way to create efficiency for hiring. Again, one more time. That's ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time to try for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. Our guest, uh, who's been with us for the last hour and will be with us till the end of this hour is Melissa Odin. Her website is melissaodin.com. That's O-H-D-E-N. Her book, You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir, was just released a few weeks ago, well, almost a month ago now, on January 9th, 2017. And we've been, uh, blessed by Melissa's story so far. Uh, she's covered a lot of ground. If we, uh, can, Melissa, let's get to, to you writing your book. Uh, you talked about how not only and don't forget about the network too. Yeah, the um, well, the abortion survivors network, and, and you still do talks for them. But the book you talked about um, reconciling with your birth mother and how she became part of of the book. Um, when you guys, how did she become involved in the book? Well, uh, no, she, wait a second. She did mention the last. She wrote the last chapter of the book. But beyond that, Melissa, go yeah, ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to explain it a little bit, so, you know, my birth mother and I, like I shared, have spent really about the last few years learning to get to know one another and trust one another, and and I think there was kind of this unspoken question that we both had, which was, you know, are you ready to meet? And I think I think we were both afraid to, to ask the question, and so I was actually traveling to Washington, D.C. last spring to testify before the Senate, and, you know, just was emailing back and forth with one of my half-sisters, and I, I finally just got the courage up, and I said, listen, I, I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I think I'm ready to meet if if you all are ready to meet. And, um, you know, hit send and kind of held my breath, right, thinking I really put myself out there. And 
almost immediately I got a reply back from her that was just yes all the way across the email and um, she had said and and I spoke with you know our our mom my birth mom too and yes she wants to meet and so uh, you know it was um and I'm sure you can hear it right the excitement in my voice it was just one of the most exciting moments in my life I've been so blessed with my parents um, and and now I had this opportunity for my birth mother to come into my life and so it took a few weeks for us to find a, a time that we could all get it worked out and to travel and so we met last May and um, not to give the whole book away my husband went with me and and our oldest daughter and my half-sister and her kids and my birth mom we all met and um, you know, I, I will never forget what it was like to know that she was there um, nearby, and, and I had to take those steps to meet her. I There was a time where I actually turned to my husband and said, I want to run away. I I just, I, I cannot, right? I cannot do this. Um, but, of course, I knew in my heart that I could and I needed to, but um, I was so nervous. And the moment I saw her, though, I was not nervous. Wow. anymore um, we hugged and uh, I'll never forget I actually had said to her I said it's she said something like you know I'm just so happy to see you and I hugged her back and said it's been a long time mm. and it had been you know almost 39 years ago I was taken from her wow. and uh, so we've met um, more than once now after that and you know, in terms of the book, really, the book was done before we met, and I had told her over the years, right, that I was working on something, and and I was always kind of worried about how it might affect her or what she thought of it, and I didn't want to scare her away from me, and I gladly would have given up the book in a heartbeat if she needed me to do that, and um, wow. so we had met, and it was a few months later that I finally said, listen, I do need you to take a look at the book, and I'm scared to death. <laughs> to have you read it, but I need you to. And so she read it, and once again I was on pins and needles thinking she's going to hate it. Uh And the email started pouring in with her saying, I love it, and I am so proud of you, and I am so thankful that you were willing to do this. And and then we sat down together and and hashed out more details that we were able to put in the book together. So Uh brought us together. That's that's wonderful. I I mean... That, that's a good, that, that's a great ending. That's the best possible ending, isn't it? Uh, I mean, really. That's, Doesn't get any better than that. No, now, I, we gotta ask you this. The topic of abortion, because we're getting here closely into the program, um, some say that the topic of abortion has pl- played a large role in the outcome of the latest election. Um, what are your hopes for the abortion laws in the future? Uh, and, and kind of a secondary question to that. Do you believe, is there any way possible to bridge the gap that appears to be widening in both sides of the abortion, quote, debate, as if there should be a debate? But anyway, what are your thoughts? Way to bridge that divide, you know, and that's why I want to start there. Even though, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I see more people who are saying, uh, you know what, we know it's a baby and we don't care. I think that n- that number is quite slim. What I think we have is this much greater number of people who who may identify themselves as pro-choice, but if you actually sat down and have a conversation with them, because I do this, right, 
What I typically find is that it, for some people who identify as pro-choice, if you actually talk about it, they're really pro-life with exceptions, right? Uh, for cases like rape, incest, life of the mother. Um, so, so I do believe that a greater majority of people exist who are actually pro-life. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and certainly this administration gives me a lot of hope. I'll be honest. I was not on the Trump train. I was not. Um, I was probably one of the more critical of him. Um, but I accepted over the course of time that, that God had a plan and I needed to embrace that and trust that. And as Trump really surrounded himself with such incredible pro-life leaders um, and faithful people, um, I've been impressed. Good. And I have a lot of hope. I have more hope than I've had in a long time. Um, and I think we've seen it already, right? Um, the Mexico City policy being, you know, it just he's making progress. And I'm excited. Well, that gives me hope. I mean, I, Joe, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Melissa. That gives me hope. Changing her mind without having to riot or <laughs> <laughs> just messing around. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, the, Not too the far partisan off. politics that go with abortion. In your experience, is it, or is it just me that for some reason, for the most part, Democrats just inherently support abortion? while conservatives are more pro-life. Does that split along party lines, or is there something deeper there? Well, unfortunately, that's what we see, right? You know, there are Democrats who are pro-life. There is the Democrats for Life um, group, which I am thankful for. Um, But, yes, we see it tend to run partisan, you know, it runs partisan lines. And, you know, having testified before the House and the Senate, I will tell you that I can tell who is who, um, by the way they look at me or don't look at me, by the way they stay in the room or they leave the room, um, that has always been very clear. Uh, and even at the state level, I actually had someone who was a Democrat um, who actually got up and left when I took the podium to speak. And I don't know if that was to try to throw me off or because they simply, you know, didn't want to hear what I have to say. I don't know. But what I can tell you is that even though the Democrat did it that day, I had a Republican end up slipping me a piece of paper later on with a piece of scripture that day saying, don't mind that person. You were made for just such a time as this. Wow. You, you handled and, that better than I did. I, uh, the furthest I got, I never testified before Congress. I testified in a, um, a supervisor's meeting in a, one of the people. There were three. I mean, three one got up and left when I got up to speak and I said, where are you going? I, I asked him, where are you going? But so you handled that with grace, dignity, and class. Um, a lot better than I did. What are your plans for the future regarding your speaking, the book, your family? What kind of plans do you have? Because you've got such tremendous, uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, this is I great. wish the answer, you know, the only answer I can ever give people is that you know what, I will go where the good Lord leads me, which I don't know where that is on a day-to-day basis, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I usually say I um, it is the most exhilarating life to just really just leave it all up to him, honestly. Um, but I have two little girls, you know. I have an almost nine-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and so I'm always trying to balance um, raising our family and um, and and doing what God has called me to do in our world. So, 
You know, I hope there's another book within me. I love to write, um, and I love to speak, uh, and I have a healthy dose of courage, you know, even though I, I felt for years like I was the wrong person for the job. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I've embraced it, and so I'm excited. I don't know what all I'm going to do in the future, but I'll tell you, I'm not stopping until we're done. Amen. What's your husband think? Uh, you, know, I, I, bring, bring him on. Uh, oh, I know. He's downstairs with the kids. Sorry. Oh, that, uh, but, but I mean, your husband, aside from just, I'm sure, loving you to death. But, but what's, what, what, what are his thoughts? My husband is a saint. Yes. Um, no, you know what? The funny thing is, my husband is a very quiet person by and large, and so we were thrust into this very public life. Um, so that's been interesting for him. But he has been the most amazing support through this. I, I would not do what I do if it wasn't for my husband. Um, not only does he support me, but he's my IT guy. He's my, you know, my security. He's just, he's my everything. And I think what's been the neatest thing for me is that he's become more vocal and um, very, much more upfront with his beliefs um, now that, that we live the life that we do. And so, you know, that. That makes me happy for him that he's bold. He, he sounds like a, a he sounds like a keeper. He sounds like a, a true man. Don't tell him I said that. Okay. Well, yeah. Hey. <laughs> well, you know, you go ahead. I wanted to ask you. Uh, founded the Abortion Survivors Network, and you go around speaking in a number of places. How common, or how many people uh, are in the same position that you are in? Yeah, I wish I knew how common surviving an abortion was. That's a typical question. Um, and it's just really hard to get to the number um, of abortions that fail and children that survive. But if your um, audience wants to go to theabortionsurvivors.com, there's actually a, a page where we keep it updated with news stories about survivors and, and actually share data. You know, in the United States, we don't keep clear-cut numbers. Um, but some countries actually do report out the number of children who survive abortions each year, and so that's included on our website. Um, but through the Abortion Survivors Network, I've had contact with 210 other survivors. And, you know, I'm thankful for each and every one of those 210 lives, but in reality, 210 in the face of tens of millions of lives lost, you know, we are a very unique group. Amen. Wow. Um, I'll just say this. You're speaking to multiple countries. Uh, last year we've had downloads for, we had downloads for 114 countries. Um, so you're, you're talking to a lot of people right now. And I'm sure there are young women or women perhaps who are pregnant. Women maybe even considering having an abortion right now. Uh, but certainly a lot of women, a lot of guys. What, 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 what would you say to any one of those? within our audience what would you say especially if they're um in a position where they're the woman is pregnant or, or perhaps even considering an abortion or, or perhaps even to those who have had experience went through the abortion process what would be your message well so i've got you know two answers there the first one would be to somebody who's considering an abortion now i'd say first of all you know think about everything i've talked about tonight um abortion has consequences and um an abortion is permanent. Um, life circumstances, by and large, are not. And so whatever you're facing, abortion is not the solution to that. Um, and the great news is that there are people around the world 
you know, through churches, through pregnancy centers, um, through pro-life organizations who are there to support somebody in their time of need. Um, so you are not alone. And, and people can certainly contact me. I was just emailing back and forth with a woman last night from another country who was going to be forced into an abortion by her, her boyfriend. So, you know, we're constantly um, in contact with people. For somebody who's had an abortion, or maybe it's even the guy who who took their girlfriend or paid for it or, you know, simply didn't do anything to intervene, what I would have to say to you is that you are loved. You know what? You are loved. Just as I love my biological mother, I bear absolutely no hate in my heart for anybody who has been involved in an abortion decision. And I want people to know that they are loved and they are forgiven and there is hope. There is healing to be found in pregnancy centers and, and you know, great um, outreach like Rachel's Vineyard, Project Rachel. There are so many opportunities for people to find healing after an abortion. Okay. Well, and I want to thank you for that. And I'm, I'm sure you've touched the hearts of, of many people, um, certainly touched my heart. And, and I know um, uh, just, just wow. You know, when John told me that he had arranged to, uh, the interview for you to come on. Um, I, I was really stunned. I had to think about this and I had to think about mm-hmm. what questions to ask because, uh, uh, wow, it's just such a, a tremendously gripping story. And by the way, folks, grab a hold of a copy of her book and you gotta support, uh, Melissa and people like Melissa. You carried me a daughter's memoir. You carried me a daughter's memoir. Uh, Please, please, because what a, what a touching book that is, um, Melissa. I, I want to ask you if you had a chance to speak to Cecile Richards, the head of Planned Parenthood. This is just me asking this now. You can see me smiling already, right? Because I know this is going to be a good one. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> well, it's funny, right? Because Cecile testified not long after I did, yeah. and they raised the question: "Oh, have you?" do you know of, of any children who have survived abortions? And her answer was no. Doesn't and so, so, you know, I raised the question, and not, not trying to be, you know, funny about it, but I raised the question and said, you know, is she confirming what I testified to, which is that Planned Parenthood does such a good job with abortion that, that people like me are not existing in our world today? Um, or is she lying through her teeth? I don't have an answer to that. Check and mate. You see, you should be, you could have been an attorney. Not, not that that's a good thing about, I mean. I considered it. I considered it. Wow. Man. Well, what a gripping testimony. Um, well, well, please be, don't be a stranger to our program. And, and, uh, if people want to reach out to you for whatever reason, you're accessible via your website, correct? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. Good. But yeah, let's keep in touch and, and, yeah, we're, do. We're, you know, I'll tell you, you're, you, your family will be in our prayers. Um, we just think so much of you. Um, uh, not because of the situation that you, not, not because of, uh, you know, where you find yourself, but because of what you made of that. And we think so highly of you. And of course, your book, You Carried Me a Daughter's Memoir. So this is fantastic. So. Thank you so much for the, your gift of time tonight. And thank your husband. And, and give your two children a, a big hug on our behalf for uh, allowing you the time away from family time tonight. I certainly will. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. Have a good night. Wow. Isn't that, folks, isn't that great? Well, uh, I mean, she, what a great lady. Uh, 
uh, Melissa Odin. I don't want to say that she could be my daughter, but she could be my daughter. You know, I I mean, wow. Of course, that's scary by itself because that makes me old. But um, my goodness, when when you think about this and, and you think about uh, what she had said, the message in her book is so inspiring, uplifting, but but so to the point. Um, folks, thank you, and and thank you, uh, Karen Campbell Media, so much for hooking us up, and thank you, uh, Melissa Odin, for your testimony for being such a great Christian. And you, you heard too how God really played an important part in. See, we 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 make yeah, plans. God in her faith. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we make plans. God says, "Yeah, nice try, nice try." You plan to abort that child? Yeah, nice try. Ain't gonna happen. Not now. God's got this, and in the larger sense, I think that that's that's where we're at, uh, largely. Um, now, coming on after coming on shortly is Pastor Flip Benham. I'm going to kick out early. And let, uh, Joe, uh, converse with Pastor Flip Benham. Uh, I've got some things I, I need to get done, time sensitive for, actually for tomorrow, but have to be done tonight. Um, so I'm going to kick out early. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, you better stick to it. Yeah. Now, okay, so, but, but please, um, tell everyone you know about Melissa and her book and her foundation. I do want to mention this before I go, Joe. We were, I was talking to John Robertson earlier this morning and, uh, talking with some others. You know, folks, I want to ask you a favor. If you're listening to this broadcast, if you're listening to this or watching this, I don't, well, I don't care. If you're listening to this on Global Star Radio Network or listening to this on BTR, both fine platforms, please do us a favor. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are getting throttled on our YouTube subscriptions. Uh, they are actually... It's like a standstill. I don't, it's, it's strange. It's, it's, no, it's, I was talking to Alex Jones you about see, this before about this. Um, some of the, the metrics and statistics will give you how many subscribers in the last 24 hours, how many in the last week, how many in the last month. The numbers seem to that they would be moving in an upward trajectory much more than they are, but the overall number is kind of stagnant. Well, YouTube is, there. there's a censorship that's going on, but it's, I don't know if I would call it a censorship, a flat censorship. It, it's it's a way they bury the videos. They bury the channel. They're, they're doing things with the metrics. You think that so, YouTube can even un- unsubscribe people from channels? Because I've uh, noticed yeah, that um, actually, yeah, they there's can. a few channels that I check on a regular basis, like two, three times a week, and it's through our, our Hagman report account. And suddenly and they're not to, there. I've, you know, on the left-hand side, yeah. like the the YouTube channels that you watch will have the list of names, and then it'll have how many videos since you last viewed the channel. And some of the ones at the very top, I had to go resubscribe. Yes. Yeah. And I know that there's a few people who have access to our YouTube, uh, you and Eric. And I, I doubt that you guys are in there hitting unsubscribe to different channels. No, we we Cause we all we leave each other that. stuff alone. But. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of, it's only happened once, but I wonder how much of that happens. And again, we, we were, this was an issue that, that, that we spoke, uh, that uh, Alex Jones and I spoke about today. And the, the, uh, the censorship of YouTube in particular. And 
if you ask me to explain this or provide evidence to this, oh. I can't do it. It's not just the censorship, it's the demonetization. If oh, you of have course. the if you have the word Islam or terrorism in your tags, your yes. video will be demonetized. Right. And that's just two out of sheets. I mean three, four or five sheets of paper with words on it. Um everything and anything. Stuff, you know, like globalism or um war. Um it's amazing what they demonetize and they do that in the name of, of content. You know, they say we have to keep our content free from this kind of um, it, it, information, that kind of information. But it's so broad, oh. even if you're talking, I mean, you could be talking about Islam in a positive light. You probably would have your videos demonetized. It's it's an amazing thing what they do. So we ask you this. If you're listening to this on Global Star or BTR, and if you, or if you're watching this on YouTube Live, and if you've not subscribed, we ask that you subscribe to our channel. Because, again, that raises the visibility, and it gives us some additional metrics to, to work with in terms of, it, it, it's 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 amazing, um, uh, and, and this happens to, to Infowars at a higher number than ours, um, but our number it's not not it has it's not even close to the real numbers. When we come back, Pastor Flip Benham, Operation Save America dot org. That's Operation Save America dot org. He's been on our show quite a few times. We're going to get into uh, what his take, since it's been a while since he's been on, about the political climate, the uh, spiritual climate that's behind the political climate we see, as well as what he envisions for this presidency and for um, what we've been through and what we're going through right now. We'll be right back with Pastor Flip Benham from OperationSaveAmerica.org right after this. Stay with us. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In Three Days in the Belly of the Beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute 
constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. At HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. I want to thank all you guys for hanging in there with us. Up next, we have Pastor Flip Benham, OperationSaveAmerica.org. It's been a while since uh, Flip's been on. He's a, a very outspoken pastor and uh, a former guest of the show. Flip, it's great to have you on the Hagman Report. Well, it's great to be with you, Joe, and I uh, enjoyed listen, listening to uh, Melissa's testimony. That was um, That was good. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, it's a very uh, emotional story, and um, it's hard to listen to, you know, um, till you wrap your head around the fact that everything listen, worked out all right. God has taken, amen, but God has taken uh, what the devil means for for evil and for horrible and turned it for good to bring the salvation of many. And through Melissa's testimony, you can see that God is making her an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. To say that, you know, even my mom, when she was going through all of this stuff and her grandmother had forced her to have an abortion, and somehow I survived that saline-induced abortion, that God saved me for a purpose. And that and that is the key, that God saves each and every person for a purpose, because he has a plan and a purpose for all of our lives. And and so when I heard her testimony, though I didn't hear you know a lot about how Jesus saved her out of the mess that she was in, I know it was him. He's the only God who can do things like this and take the mess that we make of our lives and the and the sin that's in our lives and remove all of that through his mercy uh, by dying on a cross for, for wretches like me and like you, Joe, and then somehow taking that mishmash, mud, blood, and guilt, and mess and making it into something beautiful. And, and that's what I heard of Melissa. I've heard that story so many times just because we're out at the abortion mills. We're fighting this battle. We see people giving their hearts to Christ. We watch them transformed by the living power of the gospel of Christ. And man, that God just lifts them up out of the pit, sets them upon the rock of his truth. Their whole worldview changes, even though nothing in their circumstances change. And we see them now singing that song. <laughs> and when they sing that song, their life begins to make beautiful music. And, uh, and that's what we heard from Melissa. And I was blessed to hear it. I listened to every word. Yeah, it was a very amazing and inspiring story. 
it absolutely talks about and shows how uh, Jesus works, even when we're at our, our lowest, um, how things can turn around. Amen. And Amen. without that strength, who knows where we'd be. But, well, I've got a pretty good idea where I'd be. I mean, God would, I would have just been in a shoot and sent right directly to hell. That's where I would be. Uh, and yet he saved me. And, and, and as he does that, we begin to realize that he is the answer. And, Joe, you and I are born for a time such as this. And, and that we're in a time that, that the, the, the line that is being drawn between what really divides us in this nation has become ever so clear. As you look at UCAL, uh, Berkeley, and, and you see the things that are going on, and the, just the, the utter, uh, the, the, just throwing rocks, burning things, you know, setting off firecrackers and shooting Roman candles into buildings and throwing, you know, the gates into the windows and crashing them down and tearing everything up and leaving garbage all over the mall like the Women's March and uh, in Washington, D.C. You look at the pro-life march. My goodness, there wasn't one piece of paper left on the ground. You look at after that woman's march, and man, there was junk and signs everywhere. I mean, it's just so... The, the, what is dividing this nation is not our color, our race, not our ethnicity, not our geopolitical situation, nor our you know economic, social status. That, and those are all just offshoots of something else. The deepest division and what we are suffering in this nation is is simply a battle between two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And there is hatred between the two seeds. And they are going to be vying for control of this planet. It is all found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the devil, and the curse on the devil, as he had deceived Eve, and then she bit into that fruit, and that, and then as she bit into that fruit, she was instantly separated from God. What happened then was was sin entered into the world. And this sin, God said to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is Genesis 3.15. And between your offspring and, and his offspring. And you will bruise his heel, but he... Jesus will crush your head. There is no reaching across the aisle between these two seeds. There is no compromise that we can make. One is looking for the death of the other. One is for life and one is for death. The seed of the serpent sounds just like this. My rights, my body, my choice, my thing. I do what I want whenever I want. And my one commandment is don't you judge me in essence declaring yourself as God on the other side the seed of the woman says this not my will but thine be done it says that you were bought with a price the apostle Paul tells us this you are bought with a price you are not your own therefore glorify God in your body that my body is given to me to bring glory to him the gifts that I have been given by God have been given to me to give away that others might come to know this Jesus that I know and you see here is the battle and it's cutting right down the middle of the heart of every single individual in this nation and there is no common ground between 
the two. One is going to bruise the heel, he's going to fight, and he's going to hate, and the other is going to crush the head of that lie, tear down every stronghold, every thought that comes against the knowledge of God, and make it captive to Christ. That is what the church of Jesus Christ is. That's the church. That's Joe. That's you. That's me. That's everyone that has been bought by the blood of the Lord. Everyone who has asked Jesus to save me, Lord, we begin to realize that it's not all about me, but really all about him. And as we lose ourselves in him, as we lay our life down, that he might live in us, we find true liberty. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What makes America great, what makes America free, unlike any other nation before her, is the Jesus in the Bible. And it is this Jesus that is uniting enemies that have... I mean, you're just seeing them out in the street. They want the death of people who do not agree with them. They they are so filled with hate. It's stunning to me, as we watch it on television, and God is showing us, this is what they're like. When Father comes back to town, when Father shows up at UCAL Berkeley, when Father shows up at, uh, at schools and campuses all over this nation, when you see God's man come and stand, you're going to see battles like this raging across this land. And you know what? They're not going to quit. The, those that are angry about, about people that are acting like fathers, people that are coming and saying, look, <laughs> I was gone for a couple of years. I've been away from the house for a while, and now I see that the front door of our house house is broken down. I see kids in the basement of our house, and they're inviting other strangers in. They're selling cocaine. They're doing drugs. They're smoking pot. They're doing everything. And when Dad gets home and sees the home like that, when Father returns to his place, he's going to clean that up. He's going to do everything that he can. He's going to he's going to put a door on the front of that house, and he's going to he's going to be there at that door. He's going to move some of the bad stuff out of that house. It isn't going to stay there anymore. And you know, when Father comes, uh, he's just acting like a father. Uh, that's that's that last verse in the Old Testament. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or I will smite the land with a curse. And right now, America is under a curse. But we have a man that has come into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and he's acting like a father. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's incredible, because I don't know about his Christianity, but what I do know is that God's anointing is upon him, and this man is able to weather storms that that I certainly wouldn't be able to weather, and I know that he's cooking on the oil of the Holy Spirit. I know that. Does that mean that he's a Christian? That part I don't know. I'm not sure, but one thing I do know, he is the jawbone of a donkey that God is using, number one, to teach the church how to act like a father, to teach us that we should stand up against these enemies that are destroying us, savaging our nation, and destroying our children. Over 60 million dead now since January 22nd, 1973. And we need to get fathers back into this battle, and God is calling fathers. The problem is, when the father shows up, the kids go nuts. They don't 
don't want this. I owe you judgmental. Your message is so dark. It's just you're ruining all of it, all of our joy. Yeah, I'm not going to allow this to go on in my house. I'm putting doors back on the house. I'm getting some of these bad actors that you've got in this house. You've dragged in here. They're going. The pot's leaving. The cocaine is gone. The heroin is gone. We're cleaning this mess up. But kids don't like that. And so that's where we are, Joe. And it's great to be alongside of you in this battle. Absolutely. It's great to to have you on our side, Flip. Um, and what you just spoke to was the... Um, in, we see the political divide in this country, the ideological divide that you mentioned. But what is not talked about too often is the spiritual battle that's behind this movement um, that is driving that hate. And do you would you say that there is... Um, that God is is creating this to separate his people to find out where people stand or is this a something that is is more of a precursor uh to the battle lines that will be drawn in the near future well the battle lines were drawn back in Genesis 3:15 two seeds growing simultaneously vying for control of this planet the seed of the serpent the seed of the woman that's the divide and 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 there is hatred enmity i will place enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring that was the curse that god placed upon the devil and so we understand this battle so so we should not be surprised that democrats sidle up with islam I mean, you'd say to yourself, what in the world? Wait a minute. Democrats, they're pro-homosexual. They're pro-abortion. They're pro-every religion except Christianity. What what do they have in common with Islam? Why is that their most favored um, religion now? Our mayor in, in the city of Charlotte this past Friday morning um, joined with the Juma Muslim Juma prayer. That's that's uh, Jennifer Roberts. She's our wonderful um, uh, mayor who brought with us, brought here uh, into the anti-discrimination um, law in in our city, and said, "I'm going to add five new things to the non-discrimination law in the city of Charlotte. Uh, those five things are going to be: um, you can't discriminate against anyone, with you know, in regards to race, ethnicity, age." Gender, and then she adds five new ones marital status, family status, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. That's our mayor. Now, now, here she is talking about promoting homosexuality, yet she knows that in Islam, if one is found to be a homosexual, there is one thing for him, and that is called death. It's a capital offense. And yet, here she is joining in the Juma, you know, the Juma prayer that they do every Friday um, afternoon. She was there in the morning, you know, telling everybody about where she was going to be, and then she joined with our Islamic friends, and and there she, who claims Christ, uh, joined with them. Listen, what does light have to do with darkness? If you're a Christian, you cannot do that. I mean, my goodness, I, there are. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." He also said, "I and the Father are one." He said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Jesus said, "He is God." Well. Islam doesn't accept that. Islam.
Islam says that's not true. Islam says that it's that Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross, that he wasn't buried in a grave, and that he wasn't raised from the dead. Man, those are the tenets of Christianity. Now, one is right and one is wrong. You understand what is happening with us as the church, and this is the manifestation of the battle that I see, is that the church has become sort of content in sort of trying to level Christianity and prostrate it to the same level as every other religion, so that all religions are the same, just different names for God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is only one God. There is only one God that can save us from our sin. Only one answer, and that is Jesus. Not Mohammed, not Krishna, not the God in the tree, not the God in me, but Jesus. And we in the church need to live this out, and we need to act fatherly. We need to say that this is good and this is bad. Um, we are called to make judgments, but we are called to make righteous judgments. That's not doing whatever I want and becoming my own God. That is, what does God say empirically, objectively, apart from me, what does God's word say? And it says, thou shalt not murder. You don't kill little baby boys and girls in their mother's womb, no matter what trimester, because a child is a child at conception, at fertilization. All of the chromosomal pairs are there. How tall he or she is going to be is already determined upon conception or fertilization. Um, what kind of personality that little baby boy or girl is going to have is already determined. The plans that God has for that child already determined. And the only one that can stop that, of course, is a mother that says, uh-uh, I can't, I can't afford this, I can't deal with this, I don't want to deal with the shame, I don't want to tell my mom, my dad, I just gotta, and, and, and they get very desperate and they run and they have an abortion. Violation of the sixth commandment of God, and there are consequences to that that go way beyond anything that we know, because they work out psychosomatically. If a mother stops the process of a child growing in her womb by her choice, and she has that choice by her choice, then other things come into play. And Proverbs chapter 28, verse 17, simply says this, which is a, it's, it's an incredible verse, and we need to pay some attention to it. It says that the man that is guilty of murder shall become a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. You see, you go ahead and murder just because you can, because you're bigger. You go ahead and murder that child in your womb, and what you thought was going to set you free, that abortion, will become a ball and chain around your neck that will drag you into the depths of despair and despond and depression, and you will not be able to extricate yourself from that. It will take you so far down. I mean, the voices in your head, that there won't be enough margaritas you can drink to assuage your guilty conscience. There won't be enough lines of cocaine that you could snort to make the voices in your head go away. There won't be anything that you can do. Not enough hours on a psychiatrist's couch. <laughs> Not enough Prozac or Zoloft or Xanax that they could prescribe to help you to cope with the pain. You're going to hate yourself and you're going to hate everybody else and things are going to happen into you where you just don't even care about yourself. You would rather die than live with the voices in your head and no matter where you go, there 
there you are. You can't escape you. And, and you feel trapped. You're like an animal caught in a trap. And, and you're trying to gnaw off your own leg to get free. So many mothers that have had an abortion have taken their own lives because they could not live with the guilt. Because you become a fugitive. You become a slave. A psychological slave. Far worse than being behind physical bars where you can see the bars. It's something that never leaves you. And you keep trying to justify what you've done in your head. You can blame it on your mom. You can blame it on your dad. You can blame it on the abortionist. You can say, oh, it's just a blob of cells. All of these justifications and rationalizations will not assuage your guilty conscience. And so what, what does a mother do? There is anguish inside of her soul, and it works out psychosomatically in ugly ways. Frigidity, all sorts of depression, bipolar. So many women are enslaved by this thing called an abortion, by violating one of God's laws, the sixth commandment of Almighty God, thou shalt not murder, and there's no way out. No way out until you come to the point where you say, God, I cannot deal with this. It is, it is destroying me. I am, I am totally lost. I am totally blank. I am so desolate. I'm a wasteland inside, and even though I smile on my face and see others, they don't have any idea. I'm not free. I am a slave. And God says, the man who is guilty of murder shall become a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. The worst thing that we can do is try and, and try in, in the compassion of our hearts to make the pain go away in some other way other than telling the truth. And look at the horrible truth is this. You killed your own little baby boy or girl, and you did it for yourself. Now, when you tell that kind of a truth to a mother, she may get very angry or she just may break down in tears and say, yeah, that's what I did. As soon as that happens, God is free. As soon as she admits and confesses this truth, God's mercy will be poured out into her if she asks. And he will forgive her of every sin. And then not only will you have the mercy, but his grace will be poured into you. And grace is the desire and the power to do the will of God. And God will set her free. It is Jesus that is the answer. Listen, Joe, we have an answer. It isn't all the pro-life groups and all of the great crisis pregnancy centers and all the wonderful health, 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 healthy things that we have going on to help moms. And we have lots of them here in the city of Charlotte. It is Jesus first. She's got to come to grips with what she did. And as soon as she does, and she confesses that truth, she will receive mercy and her sins, though they be as scarlet, will become as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus will set her free. He is the only one who can. He breaks the chains. And believe me, as he breaks the chains in an individual, he also can break the chains in a nation. And believe me, Amen. we as a nation are suffering under the curses and the consequences of killing over 60 million little baby boys and girls and allowing the enemy to call that which is evil good. Now, <laughs> marriage is no longer what God set it out to be between a man and a woman. 
It is whatever you want, however you want to define it. You become as God. You become, you determine what is true and what is false. And God says, no, that's wrong. I'm telling you, that is the seed of the serpent. I am the one that gave marriage for the blessing and procreation of mankind. I, I call it family, where there's a father and a mother and children. And these children are arrows to be launched against the devil to shut him up. These arrows that we've been given and are like strategic weapons placed in the hands of mothers and fathers. We raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Arrows have a, a point on the end that's to be sharp, to, to read with comprehension, to write with articulation, to compute with accuracy. We teach them, and then we teach them the principles of God's law. And then, and then it has a long stem, and then it has feathers on the back that when it's launched from the bow of family and church, this will fly straight and true. That's called character. That flies straight and true right into the target and I believe me, the devil hates our kids. He wants to kill them. He fears them. That's why he kills the little baby boys and the girls in the womb. That's his plan A. One third of the children, 44 years old or younger, have been killed already by abortion in this nation. One third of them that could be here filling our schools and, 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 and now our workplaces, they're all dead because we have killed them. And, and now what the devil is seeking to do, if he doesn't kill them, he's going to waylay and detour them so that they will not take him out. He fears these children. We have no idea our responsibility and our greatest responsibility is to raise them up to be mighty in the land. Do you say? Absolutely. Amen. Um, and you're right. These, <laughs> I mean, Jesus does use the you know what the enemy seeks to destroy for his own purposes and you know i wonder um how if at all we're going to see if the if this is the the end times where the lord pours out his his spirit upon all flesh if we're going to see the repentance i, I just think that people are so dug in in their ideology so dug in in their mindset even christians to a great degree are not open for Correction from the Holy Spirit uh, in many areas, uh, whether it's reading their Bible, whether it's the, <laughs> the ideology they think, and I see that boiling over to the other side. Where, uh, and we look at the, the politically, people have all these misconce misconceptions due to uh, you know lies and propaganda. What, what really boggles my mind is how many people, uh, you know, Trump has a lot of faults, but when they try to paint him as racist, they try to paint him you know as all these things where there's no evidence to back it up and people just buy into it wholeheartedly and then you know continue to perpetrate that lie based on uh, a misconception or, or a lie it, it's just mind-boggling i don't see how besides a supernatural healing from the lord i don't see how people can get back on the uh, on into the truth into the spirit of truth it's it's like people are just completely closed off a vast majority of americans on either side of the aisle are completely closed off to that truth flip we're coming up against the break um and flip will, mr flip Benham will be with us in through the next segment till the end of the show his website operation save org. he is a pastor who's been on the front lines for a long time him and his family fighting against abortion um and many other uh, areas of uh 
our Christian world that that seem to be ignored and uh, you know demonized by everybody who's not a Christian, and they hate, uh, as Flip talked about, the hate is raging. We'll be right back with Pastor Flip Benham after these short messages. Stay with us. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. To, I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric's a, It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family, masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? New Year from all of us at Training Post in the Woods. We pray you have a healthy, safe, and prosperous 2017. And we would like to thank all of you for welcoming us to the Hagman and Hagman family. You're all a very wonderful and special group of people. Because we believe it is so important for you to work and acquire good health this year, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a thank you to you for your support. We're going to make something available that we believe everyone needs. During the month of January, anyone who invests in their health by purchasing either our American Heritage Remedies Kit, our Survivalist Natural Remedies Kit, or $200 in individual remedies of your choice, we're going to give to you our crisis remedy just in case for free. Your health must be a part of your preparation plan. We're here to help you with that dream. May God bless y'all, and may God bless America. Happy Happy New Year! This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. You can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, to this 
final segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Just want to say a quick apology if I sound or look disjointed. I have a, a minor cold that I'm pretty sure Eric and my wife conspired to give me over the weekend. Um, it seems to be going around everywhere, and uh, I, I'm one of the last ones to catch it. And Flip Benham is our guest, Pastor Flip Benham, from OperationSaveAmerica.org. Now, Flip, I apologize. We didn't have time to talk before this interview, and I don't know what you want to get into tonight. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about OperationSaveAmerica.org and what you've been working on? Well, we we're, we're <laughs> yeah, Operation Save America is just a simple, simply we're the wheels that bring the Church of Jesus Christ to the gates of hell. You know, we have a promise in the Scripture uh, in in Matthew chapter sixteen, where um, D- Jesus brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is really the the Roman city and the Roman uh, center of power over Israel in in those days. And uh, and he brought his disciples there, and he said, "Who do men say that I am?" Uh, this was a very important. This is the major division in Matthew. In Matthew chapter sixteen, verse thirteen, it, it's divided into two parts. The first part of Matthew is written so that we will know that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He does the miracles. He gives us the sermon, a sermon on the mount. We see all of these manifestations of demons being cast out and the lame walking, the blind seeing, um, the dead are being raised. It's it's an amazing thing. And so he brings his disciples to this point in in Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 13. And he says, who do men say that I am? And uh, and 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 they and they respond by 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 simply, um, you know, looking at him and saying, well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you may be Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. You know, so number one, their view of what the people thought of Jesus is he wasn't like some kind sugar daddy, um, sugar of the earth kind of seeker sensitive guy. They're saying that look at <laughs> this guy's either Elijah, John the Baptist, or Jeremiah. Good night. They're, he was a man's man, and, um, and and but Jesus Jesus focuses and he narrows it down and he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And that's when Simon Peter spoke up and said. You know, Jesus, you're you're the Messiah. You're the you're the Son of the Living God. And, and Jesus said, you know, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because you didn't get this. Um, it wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. And uh, and he and he and he said, and 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 I will build my and on this I tell you the truth. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That is the first mention of church in the New Testament. Ecclesia, or Ecclesia, however you want to pronounce it in the Greek. But it's, uh, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church. We need to get this and have this truth reinvigorated in us as the church. We need to have this vision because we're perishing without it. And believe me, if our hope is in conservatism, if our hope is in the Republican Party, if our hope is in the President of the United States, states of america or the congress you know that or, or the senate um or the supreme court we have our hope in the wrong thing because there is no political solution to us to this battle that we're fighting because the battle is deeper than that 
the gates of hell will forever prevail against the Supreme Court, the Congress, the president. It will forever prevail against every political solution you have. The gates of hell will always win if we're dependent upon conservatives to fight this battle that only the Church of Jesus Christ can win because our battle is first and foremost a spiritual battle. And he says, so the gates of hell, I'm going to build on this faith statement that you have made, Peter, by your faith, and I'm going to build my church upon the rubble of the Caesarea Philippi and all of the other kingdoms of this earth, for my kingdom has come. And and this kingdom is going to be fighting this battle in the name of Jesus with the sharp double-edged sword, which is the word of God. We're going to use that, and we're going to use all the elements of the armor, but this is God's solution. We're looking every place else for a solution. And, and God says, no, it is my church. Well, God, if you are looking for your church, it doesn't seem like things are going very well. Well, yeah, it is. Look, you've got all these mega churches all over. You've got thousands and thousands of people. You've got praise and worship music. The praise and worship bands are going like crazy. This is incredible what God is doing. And he says, you better be careful because that's not my church. It may look like my church. It may talk like my church. It may come around the company of the people that are my church. But this church will not fight the battle. It will not. It seeks its own comfort. So much of the visible church that we see in America today is not really the church. It is the church invisible. That is all the people who have been saved by Jesus and are now trying and following hard after Jesus to do that which he has called us to do, to storm the gates of hell where they will not prevail. That is God's church. The the reformers called it the church invisible. It it wasn't all of the the beautiful, uh, picturesque churches that we see in pictures in in the mid uh, 15th, 16th century. No, it wasn't that at all. The real church, well, Martin Luther was one of those guys who nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg and, and came in conflict with the church visible and said that this is really no church at all. It is by faith, only by faith that we are saved, only by the scripture that we know God. Sola fide, sola scriptura, that the solas of Martin Luther and the Reformation, that was the church invisible. And that church cannot um, do anything but win when it approaches the gates of hell, for God is going to fight the battle for us. So we've got to see, number one, that the church is God's answer for all the dilemma. We look at the church today and say, well, good luck with that. I mean, you, but yeah. that's because we don't see the church invisible. So in, in, in verse 20, oh, go ahead, Joe. No, no, uh, you can continue. I just wanted to say, you know, uh, the faith part is so important because, you know, when we're we're told that the gates of hell won't prevail, we have to have the faith to be able to walk that spiritual journey out. We're told in, in the Bible that we're going to have tribulation, that many will be put to death, they'll be persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and that faith is the only thing, and that walking out the faith is the only thing that will get us through that and on the right side where we need to be. You are you are absolutely right, and and just going along with that, as I'm looking here in in Matthew chapter 16, remember that division, right there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. That's the major division in Matthew. The first 
these first 16 chapters are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, uh, and, and when we come to that, that conclusion, He can save us. When we come to that conclusion, say, I am broken down, I have nowhere to go, like that lady that had an abortion trying to overcome it all of these years and just lost, and the harder she tries to get out of that pit, the more the anguish arises, and then she just cries out, God, save me. And you know what he does in one divine moment, what psychiatrists couldn't do with 87 bazillion uh, hours on on, on that psychiatrist's couch, Jesus can set you free. He can break every chain, and instantly you are made a new creation and all things become new but he says in this verse where he's talking to Peter and and he's saying listen the gates of hell will not overcome the church I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven now listen we've been given keys you and I, Joe, we are part of the church invisible. Uh, we are by far not paragons of virtue. We know our failings. I'm the greatest sinner, Joe. I know I know that I'm the greatest sinner of all the sinners because I know me better than I know anybody else. That's how the Apostle Paul could say that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. I mean, when you start walking with God, you begin to realize, boy, oh boy, Lord, you, you have got a lot of work to do in me. And he says, that's all right, son. You just keep following following me. You just keep doing what I'm doing. Just lay your life down every day that others might be saved because I didn't save you so that you could be saved and and, and lie in a hammock and drink lemonade and play harps. I saved you so that you could be a part of this battle and you could fight this battle for me in my name. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And he's talking to his church. And you and I have been given the keys. We can set people free. Anywhere, anyone that calls upon the name of Jesus, not because we're great preachers, but because we've got the greatest message in all of the world, and out of us is flowing rivers of living water, setting people free all over the place. This kind of power God wants to give, but as you said, Joe, it is incumbent upon our faith, and that faith is exactly what Peter had at that time. But look at what Jesus says after that. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16, he now all of a sudden changes from trying to show his disciples who he is, that he's truly the Messiah, because now they are saying, yes, this is what we say about you. You are the son of the living God. And then he says this. Well, I got news for you because you're all going to be disillusioned. Verse 21 says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now listen to Peter and what he said about that. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Listen to this. Peter was saved. Yes, he was saved. And on this rock, Jesus is going to build his church. 
but it's not coming right away. You see, Peter and all of the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, he would deliver Israel out from under the boot of Rome and that Israel would be set up to rule and reign the earth. They thought the time was then, the second coming. Well, I've got news for you. When Jesus came... He came to suffer and die, and this is a thought that didn't enter into any Jewish mind at all. This was a thought that hadn't been thunk, and so when Jesus said, and listen, I'm going to suffer many things under the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. It was a stunning revelation. Look, the whole rest of the Matthew... It tells us about how he ended and what happened to him and the fact that he did die on a cross and how all of the disciples deserted him. And and just they were sure that they wouldn't. And Peter was the first one to say that, listen, even if all of the others desert you, you can count on me. I'm not going to desert you. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, Peter did it. Peter thought that he had it. Peter thought that he could follow him, but he couldn't. He couldn't follow him all the way to the cross. You know what we say, Joe, all the time? We say, it's fun to follow Jesus until you find out where he's going. He's going to a cross, and he bids you and I to come and die. And this is exactly what happened. So, and, and he didn't say this just once. He said it three other times um, in Matthew that he was going to die. And on the third day, he was going to be raised again. These were thoughts that they had never thunk. This, this was, and yet Isaiah had written so exquisitely about it. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, which was written 750 years before Jesus' birth, yeah, you, you say, how could you, have, how could you have written so lucidly about Jesus, about dying on a cross? It was as if he was at Golgotha seeing it, and he did see it. He, Isaiah, God gave him that vision. He could write it 750 years before that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This truth was revealed in the Old Testament. They didn't understand it, but now that we're in the New and we're in Matthew chapter 16, we see these wonderful things that God has, that God has called us to do. And so as you see Jesus now entering into his kingdom and entering into um, his temple in, in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 12. It says this about Jesus. Now, he knows he's going to die. The disciples don't get it. But he, but he's working with his disciples, and, and pretty soon they're going to know a lot of things. But not right yet, they don't. And, and verse 12, what does it look like when Father returns to his house? Remember, the kids are just out of control. They've spent everything in Mom's bank account. They, 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 the doors are off. The, off the, front, the front door is gone. The back door is gone. They're inviting all sorts of people in. They're they're doing this snorting cocaine. They're they're uh, you know doing the pot. They're doing it's just it's just a mess. It's like a jungle in that house. And when father comes home, what does a father do? Well, I want you to see in in Matthew chapter twenty one verse twelve, it says this about Jesus. He comes into his temple, and Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He threw them all out. He got them out of there. He cleaned that thing up. And and listen, that, that house, it was visible. It was a temple. It was supposed to be God's temple, and indeed it was. Herod had constructed it. It was a temple for Almighty God. But the fact of the matter was that it was a temple that when people would come there from a long ways away looking for help from God, all they found were these money changers. All they found were these, this commercialization of religion, and it was a religion that couldn't save anybody. So Jesus drives them out of the temple, and then it says to us in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. All of a sudden, now the power is there. The Father is home. But but what do you think that those people in the temple thought about this Father? Hey, man, this, this is a dark message. This guy is acting like he's a judge over us. I mean, who gave him the authority? Who gave him the corner on the truth? He's got himself. He's come to his temple. He's seen that, they, that this temple has become a den of robbers. There is no help for anybody in there. We go to the the church visible in this country and we see just good times and and, uh, nice times. Everything is nice, but there's no place for healing. There's no place for a sick person, a sin sick soul to get well. And we have the keys and yet we don't even know how to use them. As a matter of fact, it's just like we throw the keys at a car and expect somehow it's going to turn on. No, you got to get it in the keyhole and you got to unlock. You know, my gosh, you've got this wonderful authority in you and yet you're doing nothing. So now that which is evil is being called good, and that which is good is being called evil. So the Father comes to his temple, and yes, he turns over the tables. He's going to clean things up. And all of the kids in the temple are saying, you're trying to, you're ruining everything. Dark message. Everything is bad. Everything is awful. You know what? This sounds an awful lot to me, like Donald Trump, acting like a father. Why is it that he who doesn't really know Jesus that well for sure. If he knows him at all, if he's been born again, I don't know that. But he acts more like a father than those of us in the church of Jesus Christ. Why is it that he is more bold than the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, God is just spanking us as a church saying, wake up and see me. You have made my house a den of robbers. That's why there's not the healing. That's why there are not people being set free. That's why there's no advancement of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Satan's kingdom has come in. And 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 we're killing little baby boys and girls. We've totally desecrated marriage. We, we have prostrated Christianity to the level of every other religion. What is the matter with my church? She's not moving. And then we hire conservative and Republican mercenaries to fight the battle for us. They are never going to fight because conservatism may look like salt, talk talk like salt, act like salt, seek the vote of salt, hang around with salt. Yet when the test of taste comes, it is revealed for what it really is. It is a tasteless enabler of perdition. That's right. I mean, Joe, this is true. It's conservatism. It enables true salt to remain in the salt shaker, enjoying itself. While it attempts pragmatic deal-making with an enemy bent on destroying little baby boys and girls in the womb and destroying everything else in this nation. How much of the leadership. we are to think that conservatism... Pardon me? No, much of the leadership, uh, co-ops, it, m- much of the leadership on, in, in the conservative movement 
it co-ops that conservative Christian line in order to uh, appear more moral or, uh, you know, like they're a better person or they share the same ideas just for votes or for convenience um, of success. And and you're right. It it at the same time it it safeguards that the real uh, movement, the real uh, believers in Jesus and Christians and conservatives won't have the opportunity to come out and speak because the the movement has been co-opted and the people who are at at the microphones really don't believe it at its core. Instead, they as I said, they they use it for political convenience. You're exactly right. Does the name Milo Yiannopoulos mean anything to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people uh, like him and respect him for, you know, I don't know if it's if it's being homosexual and open or being the conservative and homosexual and speaking out against the left. But, I mean, if you listen to his talks, I don't know how anybody can really sit through those things, as, as vulgar as he is. They're bad, and he's bad. And yet we, we almost... Why is it that even the enemies who speak... You know, in conservative causes, so we're, we're, they're more bold than we are. They are just, we Christians have lost everything. And Milo is, you know, he is, he is lost in homosexual bondage. And it's going to destroy him, and it's going to destroy nations that approve of that behavior. It's going to destroy him and those that believe that that is all right. And yet he speaks as a conservative, so now we conservatives are using him as some paragon of virtue. And then I listen to Sean Hannity, I listen to Laura Ingram, I listen to Bill O'Reilly. I, I, and I'm just telling you, these these all have rolled over on the issue of homosexual sodomy. So is Donald Trump. His his theology is not good. If you just look at uh, Rex Tillerson, you're going to find out that he was the one that ushered in uh, gay and lesbian, um, well, gay um, scout troop leaders into the Boy Scouts of America. I mean, yeah, it's just happened. the conservative, the Republican Party has totally rolled over on the issue of homosexuality. See, and that, listen, you can't roll over on that. You can't. God won't let that happen. And if you want God's help, this is where we, the church, have to rise up and just help. And not, we don't need to be the, the master of the government, nor do we ever want to be the slave of the government, but we must be the conscience of the government. We need to be the conscience for, for, for Donald Trump to know what is true north, what is true in the word of God. That's our responsibility. Look, we've been given four more years to fight this battle and to grow up and to repent of our apathy and indolence. We, are, we just remain happy in our little churches with our little theology serving a little God and being of little good to a world that's dying and going to hell. You know what? It's just sick what we have become, and yet we want to blame everybody else. Look, we, the church, have been given the privilege of four years where we are going to fight huge battles. The the lines are being drawn and are clear, and we ought to thank God for that. He is doing it. You're right, Joe. When when we first started talking, you're absolutely right. God is doing something here. He's giving us an opportunity to repent and and just go after him with a reckless abandon And we will see, as we go and deal with our little city councils, the abortion mills in our little areas, 
we will win these battles. God, we have the keys. God is just looking for us. He says, you loose it on earth. You get that key in the right keyhole, and you watch this thing drive, and those gates are not going to prevail. Right now, it looks bad. But this is the conflict we have to face. You know, courage, when we go through conflict, it takes courage, but it's going to bring us to conquest. But we go another way with cowardice and and compromise, and it leads to utter defeat. We have been compromising too long as a church. We have to rise up and be fathers. We have to go to our church, just like Jesus. Where did he go? Right to the temple of God. And he cleaned up that mess. And as soon as he cleaned it up, there was healing. There was revival that came. We've got to just, Joe, we can do this. All we have to do is repent and say, Lord, forgive us. We've been going the wrong way. We want to go your way. Just give us leaders. Give us vision. And we will go and we will fight the battle. And if we go down, we're going to go down standing up in the name of Jesus Christ. Unapologetically, uncompromisingly, we are going to stand for him. Amen. And uh, for those Christians out there who, you know, might be um, wondering or wondering where they stand with the, not only the spirituality, but the being engulfed in what's going on in the world of politics, we need to get back to the basics, um, you know, prayer, reading the, the Bibles, and working on your personal relationship with the Lord, and if, if anything was lost, to regain that, that knowledge, information, and that confidence in your faith to where you can get back into the into the political sphere um, to continue to, to fight for what's right and promote your uh, and, and the Christian ideals and, and values. Because I think a lot of people are lost today, and they are taking cues from the world and from society as to where their morality should be, and still identify as Christian. And when you look at the numbers, I think the last count I saw was about 70% of the nation considers themselves to be Christian. But I think a vast majority of that number doesn't really understand what that means, um, at least in the biblical sense and in the historical sense. And in the example that, that Jesus left. So we have lost our way uh, to a great degree. We've become complacent, uh, not only in our, our uh, faith walk, but also, um, in a way, giving up on, on trying to change society for the better. And it's going to take a lot of work. I don't think, I think right now what we're seeing is the Lord separating, um, you know, his house from, from the rest of the world. Um, and it, and it, it could be very rough in the future here. But, we need to always remember who we are and, and what we believe in and remember to um, always be moving forward uh, because it's very counterproductive to take one step forward, two steps back. We always need to be on the right track or at least know where that right track is to get back on it. Flip, we got about a minute and a half left. Any closing thoughts? Well, let me just say a prayer with you. Father, I just thank you so much for this time to be with uh, Joe and and uh, Doug and uh, to be with the Hagman family. I, I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would give us eyes to see what heretofore we've not seen and ears to hear what heretofore we have not heard and hearts that understand, 
hearts that will apprehend your truth. And then, God, give us the desire to follow you no matter and whatever the cost. And, Father, we pray that through us you can bring your great salvation to the people that we'll be in contact with uh, this next day, tomorrow morning, and afternoon. And, Father, that we pray that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Help us to be faithful to pray for our president and for those that are that are being raised up. We can see your hand at work here. And we pray, God, that our president, if he doesn't know you, will come all the way to know you and that those that are there with him, that he has surrounded himself with, uh, with, that they will be true witnesses for our Lord. And help us, Lord, to just live boldly, unafraid of anything that breathes, and fearing only you. And we will give you all of the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Flip Benham, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a great hour. OperationSaveAmerica.org is the website. And God bless you. You have a great evening. You too, brother. God bless you, Joe. Bye-bye. Take care. That will do it for us tonight. Uh, a great show. Again, Melissa Oden was our guest from 730 to 9, com. And uh, Reverend Flip Benham from OperationSaveAmerica.org was our guest tonight. Until tomorrow, stay safe, God bless, have a great evening. We'll be back 7 p.m. Eastern Time.